Uh, all right. Guess what, everyone? It's a bonus episode. Oh, wait. I should start the virtual camera so you can see what I'm pointing at as well. Check out this mustache guy. Uh, this I, is a bonus episode. This is a bonus episode about a man with a mustache. Um, t- today we're, we're going to talk about Philadelphia architect Frank Furness. And to help of us. Furnace. Inventor of the furnace and the furnace party. That's right. Yes. And, and to help it's... us. Yeah. To help us, we have June. Hi, June. Yeah. Hey, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we got June in because there's no Liam. Because Liam has betrayed the revolution. Um, yes. As we always knew anarchists would. Um, by not being here for the recording, I, I don't even remember where he is right now. But um, I, I think he's I think he's at Disney World. For fuck's sake! Yeah, I know. Some people get to go to Disney World, and some of us have to work. Just stay <laughs> home and do the hard graft of recording a you know TBD hour podcast about Frank Furness. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that I shit doesn't write that. itself. I prefer, I prefer that to going to the Magic Kingdom, you know, like, I, I, I don't want to go to... I think to... it's it's somewhere between going to the Magic Kingdom and going to Epcot. Because I'd rather mm. be in Epcot, that sounds fun. Magic Kingdom sounds less fun, because I don't like roller coasters or very many amusement park rides at all. Um, you know, but Epcot, I can go and pretend I'm somewhere else, like Norway or France. I could say <laughs> France here, because Liam's not here. Uh, so they've, got a, they've got a steam train at the Magic Kingdom, though. Or maybe that's just oh, this is This is true. You could, so, you could ride the like that. people transporter thing that they have there. That's cool. Um, the monorail is cool, yeah. Yeah, you could just ride the monorail back and forth all day. You that's the ride the that you're contem- interested in. You can go to the Contemporary Resort and have waffles that aren't very good. At least they weren't that good when I was there. Um, but you can watch the monorail go through the building, which is cool. You could you you could get arrested and go to like Disney World jail, um, and then get banned <laughs> from Disney World, which would both save you from having to go to get Disney World again, but also you would get a cool story out of it because you'd be like, yeah, one time I was in jail in Disney World. Imagine they need to one do of those like YouTubers where they have the um the, the 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 caption that's like exploring Disney World's infrastructure and services, Volume Two. I get arrested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I need you to like um. They should do, like, because Disney World is based around the worst cartoon character in history, Mickey Mouse, right? right. I think they need to do, like, a Looney Tunes-themed Disney World equivalent, Ooh, you know? You could, you could sort of dive off the highboard into a vault full of gold coins and, like, just you, break you, every bone in your body. Get get your photo taken with an anvil falling on you. <laughs> no, it's the, it's the Warner... It's the Warner Brothers Tower where y- Yakko, Wacko, and Dot live, and then also the yeah. frog is there singing, but not for you. And you can. <laughs> I think I think the answer is clear. When you Everyone ask me, never, you can go to the gift shop and get a frog that only sings for you, and gradually <laughs> be driven insane. <laughs> I, I I would say if you ask me, th- th- there has to be a cartoon that you base a theme park off of. It's the only one. Uh, easy. It's a it's a gimme. Venture Brothers. Gimme gimme. Uh, you know, Venture World. Um, because that that could exist in universe too. Like Jonas Venture Junior could a hundred percent build that. 
Um, I mean, I guess that's just Brisby land within Venture Brothers, but yeah, right. no, I would that. <laughs> I I would I would I think I think you could you could do a really good Venture Brothers theme park with Spider Skull Island and the, the, mm-hmm. the, the yeah. oh the, the the gated community where all the villains live. Oh yeah, I said right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A town called Malice. I swear to God, there's so many like nested references in that because it's like it's like catnip for me, you know. Um, but yeah, I want right. to. I want to go to. I want to go to Venture World. I want to buy a little plush helper. Um, and <laughs> you want to go to the you know, the the Venture Brothers version of Newark where the Monarch lives. Yes. Yeah. I would be <laughs> exactly the kind of person who who goes to like a theme park cosplaying as a character that's in that theme park, and I would go as Doctor <laughs> Mrs. The Monarch. Um, all these great ideas and what do they give us yeah fucking harry potter world world. (laughs) (laughs) and 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 we're gonna get to this because we're talking about architecture today but Mm. it's not even the right kind of victorian gothic they have at fucking harry potter world no yeah ridiculous today's subject is architecture much like these cartoon characters we are uh, talking about, we are going to talk about a cartoonish and larger than life character. Yes. Philadelphia Beautiful architect segue. Frank Furness. <laughs> the man who is half myth, half legend. Yes. The man who only ever shaved his chin and like both cheeks up to a point. Up to, I, there was a while he didn't do that either. Anyway. <laughs> Alright, this is the first half of the presentation that June put together, so this is June's problem now. Okay, cool. Thanks. Um, Justin's going to talk it, about this, this one at the end. Would this relate four... to the portion of our, our our group chat earlier where we just sort of said she you know, on my siren and um, she Frank Lloyd right? She Frank Lloyd on my right till I falling water or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> that went oh, on God. for like an hour too. Mm-hmm. She earned really on my gold finger. Oh no, I enjoyed it. <laughs> she... She arrow on my siren until I gateway arch. That's the one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about the underlying theorem here, but possibly as a thesis statement, possibly as a, as an architectural kind of um, uh, uh, as a parallel to Stra- uh, Strauss and Howe's generations theory. You have the the Frank and Lou architectural theory. Yeah, uh, through the course I of American history, this, this is this is Justin's idea. Through yeah. the course of American architectural history, the, the the generations of architecture can be broken down to roughly you know categories that are roughly Franks and Lou's. You got your Frank Furnaces, you've got your Lewis Sullivans, you've got your Frank Lloyd Wrights, <laughs> your Frank Lloyd Wrights, <laughs> you've yeah. got your Lewis Kahn, and your Lou Kahn's, yeah. <laughs> so, so what are we what are we due for it, now? It, it, the thing is, it didn't, it didn't, okay, so we are now on Frank Gary. we are waiting for the next Louie. Uh-huh. We, we await sort of like the, the Mahdi, we await a Louis, or a Louie, or, yes. or like a, a Lou, to, to come and like rescue American architecture from its benighted interregnum. Well, the other thing is like, the, the, the through line was much more direct until Lou Khan, because right. Frank Lloyd, Frank's, uh, Frank Furness was just Frank Furness. But Louis Sullivan worked in his office, and then Frank Lloyd Wright worked in Louis Sullivan's office. Right. 
And then there's this sort of disconnect with Luke Kahn, but Luke Kahn is from Philadelphia. He probably had some exposure to Frank Fern, more than some exposure to Frank Furness. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more of it back then than there is now. <laughs> there's the mon- monumentality, architectonic, uh, like w- weight playing with kind of that, uh, d- defi- you know, defying weight with the way that you kind of apply form. There's There's a few things in that sort of frame, but... I wanted to kind of throw way too forward. intellectual for a bonus episode. I can't, I can't wait. That's going to be the whole fucking thing. It's going to be awesome. I'm just going to say, I'm going to say blocks of text that I got, uh, that I left grad school to start posting about. I'm just no, going to say those do. for you'll, 45 you'll get minutes like, at a time. The listener gets, this is going to be the second bonus episode where you get a college credit for having listened to it all the way. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Right. And so that's the other thing that, uh, if only Liam were here, because this is actually the, you know, he came up with the fucking term femboy brutalism, which is the best descriptor of a Frank Furness building that there possibly is. <laughs> and we'll be getting to that as the course of the conversation progresses. All right, well, now, now you have my attention. So, uh, I think what you can what you can see is that, like, that connection between the four... And what Roz and I have attempted to do through our uh, ability to learn about things or whatever is to try to give a little bit of a history, possibly through mostly talking about actual buildings, um, discussing the life, the life, the the life, the legend of Frank Furness. And, and I think there's a really important thing where this whole Frank Louis paradigm of architecture, like Frank Furness is one of the the first like actual bombastic obnoxious star architect architects it's not mm. just that he is it's not just that he is making a ton of buildings which he is or that he's making very interesting buildings that get, that get copied all over the united states but but he's the one who's really going out there in crazy outfits telling everybody that they can go to hell if they don't appreciate what he does and 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 really <laughs> Uh, being a crazy person first and foremost as a as a kind of lead into your architecture practice, um, and I I say that I say that with a lot of love and affection and admiration because these are truly the greatest buildings that I've ever seen. Uh, and and they're so really when you think so, of the stuff that like an architect, the stuff that annoys you about what you imagine when you imagine an architect now, that's his fault. Exactly. The idea that the architect has to have their own personality and that personality is tied to their buildings in this kind of way where, oh, the ideas that are coming out of this single person's vision, you know, a a lot of that is uh, that's all nonsense, right? Architecture firms are groups of workers, uh, usually led by one horrible, (laughs) you know, one. uh, You're telling me Santiago Calatrava isn't out there extruding all of that renderite by himself? You know, he's like milking one giant sort of like renderite teeth. That would explain why it's so expensive. But mm. I would say uh, uh, there is a, a distinct contrast between, let's say, the uh, Frank Furness mode of star architecture versus the modern one, which is that Frank Furness doesn't try to couch anything in intellectual language. Oh, no. Um, yeah, he's just like fuck you. It's a good idea, <laughs> right? And so that that anti intellectualism is actually a big part of kind of made. This is a good segue to the next slide. Yeah. Uh, when we're talking, so Frank Furness grew up as the kind of anti intellectual in the house full of intellectuals, right? Uh, mm-hmm. His 
uh, father was uh, William Henry Furness, who came to Philadelphia from Boston to be the minister of the First Unitarian Church here. Um, explain, explain to me what Unitarianism is really quickly. That's like sort of Reddit Christianity of its day, right? So there's this, it's, yeah, it, I, <laughs> there's a couple different ways to, to talk about it. And I think that the, the Unitarian is, I don't know Unitarianism specifically, um, but it's, 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 it's not a theological we're familiar aspect. with in, in, in the UK, so. Right. So it's one of these, it's one of these American philosophical concepts that comes out of the 19th century. And I think that, um, there's all these kind of Victorian ideals about how nature and, and individual experience wraps into your perception of either the natural world or spirituality or what have you. Um, Unitarianism is wrapped up a lot in the transcendental mode of like transcendentalism and transcendental thinking. Um, <clears throat> which again, uh, I studied buildings, so I'm not a, I'm not a great scholar in a lot of this stuff. It's a but very, way- very like open form of Christianity, very open-minded form of Christianity. Mm. Very based I'm, in I'm the- I'm sorry I called it Reddit. Yeah. Unless it is no. Reddit, then I'm not. Well, I mean, they were all this kind of, I'm not an atheist, but also, uh, mm. so there is that, um, but Unitarianism and all, all of this kind of religious movement takes form Ooh, they in Philadelphia. They the divinity of Christ. These my yeah. guys. All right. All right. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I was down on them before. <laughs> right. So William Henry Furness writes a big, a, a big lecture that basically says, yeah, all that divi- all that divine birth shit is bullshit. It was probably just something that got made up over time. And like, yeah, God is real or whatever, but I think we have more important problems like slavery right now. So hmm. he he immediately becomes this kind of uh extremely polarizing figure. He he knows, you know, he he's he's writ- he writes all through the United or he's published all through the United States. Um becomes a really important abolitionist is involved with uh, Pennsylvania hall in Philadelphia, which I think Justin, you know, you know a lot about. Yes. Um, the, uh, the, the um, earliest, uh, I think like physical building devoted to an abolitionist, uh, abolitionist society. Uh, it was uh, burned down in a riot two weeks after it was built or I think even less than that because, uh, well, there's still a lot of, anti-abolitionist sentiment in philadelphia at this point i mean <laughs> that's right how you, you know and you're so, onto something with an ideology as you build the building it's like the whole time you're building it you're getting like rocks thrown at the construction site and then someone burns it down yes <laughs> now that's what i call ideology yeah so 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 the furnace family is are these kind of outsiders in like the philadelphia social scene generally um but but because william henry furnace is well known like throughout throughout the country they get they get all kinds of people who are coming through right so um god who is it uh ralph walden waldo emerson was like william furnace's friend growing up and so he was always at the house hanging out at the dinner table um uh, sort of knives out sort of daryling glass onion of the the furnace household Yeah, not part of the so, experience, like, but right. So after after the Sumner incident in 1856, which was when Preston Brooks uh, the uh, beat Charles Sumner with a cane in the U.S. Senate in a debate over slavery, um, 
Charles Sumner stayed with the furnaces all summer. So it was that kind of place where like he was he was constantly receiving uh, visitors and guests who were doing all these kind of, quote unquote, you know, important things or, or having shit happen to them, um, especially in the lead up to the Civil War and during the Civil War. Um, right. This is my problem. So all the all the kids in the house were really encouraged, uh, like because of this kind of. You know, you have the so you have this Boston intellectual tradition that kind of pervades the house and all the kids are encouraged to to go to school, learn with tutors, go to Harvard, whatever. Go to Harvard. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so Horace Howard Furness is, is Frank Furness's brother and, and the, the Shakespeare Library in D.C. is named after him, I believe. Um, no, it's named after it's a Folger, different guy. Right? Yeah. Folger, yeah. But before that, he was the preeminent scholar. I gotta say, these guys are making my parents look like shit. Like, they, they raised, like, you know, uh, 15,000 children entirely on the right side of history with, like, you know, sort of liberal arts <laughs> educations. My parents managed one podcaster, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 feel your, I feel your feel on that as a, as, as a daytime garbage woman. Uh, so, and so Frank, Frank also felt that feel because like the Von Trapp children would run down the stairs, right? The oldest, the oldest was a portrait paint painter, which is like the most civil kind of painting that you can do. It, it has like a purpose. And then you Horace can paint your dad and make him scholar. look like August and shit, you know? Um, yeah. And, and then, and then like the German translator daughter comes down the stairs and then, and then Frank gets like hollered out to come to, to come down to dinner well, and like, look, he, can't, he's he can't learn anything. Us. He's still wearing yeah. the gaming headset. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's like, and it's like one of these things where it's like Frank was probably dyslexic or something like that. He had a lot of difficulty reading and writing. So like he everybody was like you're you're fucking dumb like what what the fuck are you gonna do around here like that's how he was he, he was the, he was the kind of the, the the red-headed stepchild of the family and he literally did have red hair but i think he did have red hair yeah family <laughs> did have red hair um so yeah he was some kind of he was some kind of small bean um but he was constantly present during all of these like you know very intellectual conversations but also he had that <laughs> What what this kind of imbued in him was that Philadelphia fuck you alongside with like, yeah, I can be smart in my own different way, which is not the same as like a book or whatever. And he kind of carries that 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 attitude throughout his life. Um and for and and as part of this, I think they were trying to figure out, you know, figuring out what kind of a career path might work for somebody like Frank. Um because yeah, professional gaming hadn't been invented yet. Yes, um, exactly. Gaming, um, uh, Japanese art uh, was really difficult mm -hmm. to acquire in America. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just like one $300,000 body pillow in the US and a guy keeps it in his vault, you know? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright went fucking bankrupt buying Japanese woodblock prints. So, th like three or four times over. Yeah, well, love but, those uh love those big titty woodblock prints right <laughs> frank Japan. lloyd wright sitting sitting like inexplicably in falling water it's like 3 a.m the only light on in the house is over his desk he's like watching spy family and he's like yeah he just like me for real i'm actually just like lloyd forger right frank so... lloyd forger fuck that okay yeah new screen now 
<laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, so, so what ends up happening is, um, you know, this is this is basically right around the time. Pe- the other complicate. So the complication with architecture for the furnace family, right, is that in this time period, it's not really an academic discipline, right? The people who are practicing architecture in Philadelphia are builders. They're, they 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 maybe have like pattern books or access to pattern books that have these like here's how to build a house instructions and then figure out the kind of various construction techniques to put those things together. Um, and and so the preeminent kind of building that's happening that's that's maybe considered architected in some kind of way is um, this stuff by John Fraser um, or or other kind of like carpenter architects right i see see rich guy house public building public building yeah uh yeah they're all public buildings or you know church uh public building church public building or school Um, i don't know if the union league is technically a public building right yeah so private uh, so the union the union league yeah yeah, what the fuck i'm gonna get what is the union league the union league's a private club (laughs) Yeah, the union, uh, uh, yeah, and it was it was started in so these are these are all buildings by John Fraser because of the nature of this kind of building practice. It's very much not um, connected to a whole lot of specific examples, right? John Fraser becomes important. Uh, he gets he gets taken up to be the architect of the Capitol, and that's when he stops working uh, like for with Frank Furness in Philadelphia. But these are just these are just some of the examples of his extant works that that have been able to be identified, and yeah, it's uh, the Union League's a, pr- a private club that was started just before the Civil War to raise funds for the Union by a- Abraham Lincoln. There there were Union Leagues all over the country. Of course, now it's metastasized into this um, Republican club in in the in the contemporary sense of the word. Um, yes. Yeah, extremely cool. Um, Right, and then that's the the uh, you know old Pine Church on Pine Street. Uh, it's a it's a va- it's a neoclassical design. It's not exactly adhering to any specific architectural motif. It's a little bit Greek revival. It's a little it's bit like, you know. It's, it's got those it's all dem- practical, isn't it? It's like, very practical. All of these are just like you, so, so. You want a like clubhouse, church, school, whatever. Uh, the guy shows up, he tells you what you should do, and then someone builds it. Like exactly, and and like very little in terms of, uh, you know, kind of flourish or or complication in the design, if that makes sense, right? So these are very these are very simple buildings. They're usually, uh, you know, right. sets of sets of halls on either side. I wouldn't call the Union League like a, a simple building in ornamentation. You got all that coining, you know, you got the curved staircase, you got all the columns, you know. It's, the I'd say this one is, is nice. Yeah. Well, and don't forget that's that's a little bit later in it too, uh, right? So the, yeah. the two on the two on the right are a little bit earlier. Those are probably more coherent with like what would be happening in when when right. furnace was in the office like, in 1857 there's also like ideology happening like if, if you're doing the union club that's a political statement whereas if you're just knocking up at like a school or whatever you know no, nobody even really thought that's... of like kids were people until like you know 1980 or whatever so you could just do this whatever is true yeah yeah, yeah. Th- th- then as yeah. now the design of a high school is you, you gotta have someone to like warehouse these little fuckers 
Um, right. Another, another, and, another one of those prisons, as Michelle Foucault pointed out. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Michelle and, Foucault, the most it, gifted practical architect of his day, had he gone into it, just be like, yeah, it's a box, you know? And if you make, yeah, if you make a building like the one on the lower right, the school, any more Greek revival than it is, you get into the Girard College problem where it's just like this, this box that's surrounded on all sides and is like a dark room. So yeah, it doesn't actually work. Yeah. <laughs> All of the kids so this is, sit in silence and like stare at this big statue of Zeus for like gonna, 16 gonna, years. We're going to put the orphans in a dark room for the first 18 years of their life. This is, I mean, this is what the Habsburgs <laughs> did. Like, and that's barely even a joke. Like, they famously all had like vitamin D deficiencies because like every royal child in like, uh, like Spain or Austria, they just kept them out of the sunlight at all costs to keep that like sort of milky white skin. Yeah, you gotta, yeah get that, at... uh, you gotta get that sexy, real pale skin, you know, for, yeah, yeah. for when you're the debutante, you know? Well, <laughs> and look how they turned out. They turned out rich, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this is, this is the kind of building that, that Frank Furness is used to. Uh, like, this is, this is the kind of practice that he goes into as he starts to... This is the earliest kind of influence of a building that he's actually participating in the construction or the drawings of, right? These are very simple, but they are very much weighty. They're heavy built. They, they look heavy. They look permanent. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that is the kind of Scottish influence as far as I can tell. Like a lot of buildings in Edinburgh have the kind of more Union League look to them, right? Mm -hmm. Alice, at least the 19, in the 19th century during that time. Yeah, you know, there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's so. this kind there's... of firmness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sort of stolid Presbyterian municipal stuff. Um, yeah. you, you see a bunch of like Victorian schools here, for instance, that like the shell survives almost any attempt by anyone, including property developers, to do anything with it. And it just ends up <laughs> as sort of like this burned out sort of like brick uh, foundation with like, you know, a bunch of construction fences around it that no one can do anything with. So yeah, these things are sort of like built to last in that respect. Yeah, yeah, but they're not, uh, uh, yeah. And so to that, so to that, they're, they're simple buildings, they're, they're heavy buildings, but, but as Frank is looking for some kind of actual deep, deeper experience, he, through his brother, I think, gets in touch with uh, Richard Morris Hunt. Um, next slide, please. So Ooh. this is when, this is when we start to have architecture. Yeah, this um, is a this is not just a building. This is a building that someone's thought about how it looks. Right. And oh. you know, uh What an this idea. Is, this what is, a concept. It's amazing. It's amazing what happens when a motherfucker goes to Paris for a couple years or whatever. <laughs> um, oh god. So unfortunately, this is this is the So Richard Morris Hunt had studied in Paris and had taken the traditional the, the traditional school approach of Parisian architects, which had established some kind of artistic practice based off of the French Revolution, they had, they had really curves, formalized curves, curves. Yeah, they really formalized circles the on it, so you can stamp a big N on there for whoever Napoleon is, like emperor at the moment. Uh, yes. It's a good time, right? Um, and so this is this is what's what's called today the atelier, right? Um, 
But we have to, of course, ask what is an atelier before we can answer the question of what was yeah. Hans it's Atelier. A pretentious, it it's a pretentious way to say architecture firm. Next question. <laughs> pretentious <laughs> yeah, pretentious way to say attic. Pretentious way to say it's the like streetwear half of the company that makes Disco Elysium that always sells out of the uh, like Kim Kitsuragi jacket before I can buy one. Um, yeah, that's what an atelier those, is. Those are all really good answers. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> it, the, so, the thing is, right? If, you, if you're listening to this and you have the like orange Kim Kitsuragi jacket, I hate you on a personal level, like a really visceral one too. I'm gonna come to your house and I'm gonna take your jacket from you. That's that's good to know. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So so they have a bunch of those stupid jackets at this school, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, they look I don't really know, like, good. They look absolutely like fly as shit. It's like eighteen sixty walking around with like an orange canvas bomber jacket. The people who live in this building now, Alice, probably all have those jackets. I'm sure. So I'm sure. Right. So this is this is up in this is up in New York. Um, this is oh, fuck. Did I not put in the notes? I forget what the the name for this building is, but I think it's just the Atelier Building or the um fuck anyway let's mute uh, my microphone while i type and let's find out yeah alice good luck good luck finding it um but anyway this is the, so richard morris hunt goes to paris he studies at the ecole des beaux-arts where he learns the kind of french method of building a large public building or a large you know kind of a, a building bigger than a house where you have this kind of symmetrical layout of rooms and there's this kind of procession through space and there's this understanding that there's there's the there's the kind of plan of the building and that influences the, the elevation of the building what you see from the street um and and he's the first architect to actually have this this kind of formalized training that then loops it back into uh traditional methods of construction in a in a more sophisticated way than just plonking down uh, a building from a pattern book. Um, so basically he comes back to America. He opens up a artist school. Studio House, 51E West 10th Street, New York, New York. Yeah, huh. and I think, it's I think it's still there. I'm pretty sure it's still there. Um, and so this is, this, this is effectively up on the third floor, the, the first architecture school in the United States that's actually teaching architects through a formalized training model that's not just an apprenticeship with a guy. Um, I, I it also includes you, it, no, it no longer exists. It was oh, raised cool. in 1956 in order to uh, make way for the apartment Peter Warren, an 11-story building. That sounds kind of lame. I'm striking out <laughs> let's, here. Let's, let's yeah. Google apartments Peter... The Peter Warren at 45 West 10th Street. Oh, it looks bad. Oh, it doesn't look good. Yeah, don't we can hurt we can yourself, put it in. Alice. No, no, no. It's it's fine. It's got some like angular brickwork on there, but it it, it doesn't. We'll have Dev put in a sort of a uh, spinning, rotating like news flash. This is what the Peter Warren cooperative looks like. But um, Peter, it's not good. Peter Warren. Yeah, Whiskey right. Alpha Romeo Romeo Echo November Warren. Ah, huh. uh, it's kind of lame. Yeah, I and mean, it's not bad, bad, but it's not it's not good. You know, considering the historical significance of what it replaced. Yeah, barely has any places to like put which Napoleon is in charge on there. I was about to say, yeah. Unless you want to like spray paint it on an air conditioner. 
so so furnace is here from 1858 to 1861 um and then goes back i think to get ready to go out to war um but and i'm just gonna burn through this real quickly in during during this time this was really influential uh Again, the, the the classic architect mode of talking is I have no I have no uh, there there are no precedents for my building type. I have thought of everything straight from my head, and it all comes exactly out just as it is. But but these are some pretty clear influences that that go through Frank Furness's work, not just the work of Richard Morris Hunt, but um, Hunt also introduces Frank Furness to the next slide, please. This is uh, Henri Labrousse uh, Bibliothèque Saint Gervais. Um, Ooh, it's like the yeah. baths of Trajan, but like fancy and for holding books. And I bet yeah, this has a got... bunch of places to tell you which Napoleon it is. Exactly, this has so many places to tell you uh, about all the Napoleons. Um, so it's this is one of the first is... uh, public buildings to really feature exposed ironwork as part of the design. Exactly. <laughs> so this is this is a public library. Uh, it's it's in Paris. And it's it's a it's a work of art that then gets to be known as Neo Greek, which means like Ow. new new Greek, not I exactly. By a cat, just I, I did. I just that pizza Probably. boy just walked all over me. He's 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 getting antsy because he knows it's forty five minutes till he gets fed, and he wants it to happen sooner. <laughs> that cat is a I monster. Like yeah. I, I like this building though. It's a beautiful little like slice of a wedding cake. And you know, I've, uh, one of my favorite cities in the world is Vienna, purely on the basis that I have this principle in my life that the more a building looks like a slice of delicious wedding cake, the more I want to be inside that building. Um, and this is—it's getting part of the way there. You know, this was right. one of my favorites from uh, architecture history class. Yeah, <laughs> this one's so. This one is so. It 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 just it's just killer, right? It has like the perfect yeah. kind of blend of like the trad bullshit going on, but it's also like using modern materials to express how open and airy you can make things. <laughs> and so this is kind of seen as like a really interesting way of approaching this kind of harmonizing the the theory behind like, oh, we'll we'll build old classical buildings and we'll do it in a modern and cool and interesting way by doing things like showing off the exposed uh the exposed ironwork, uh, making this huge vault through the ceiling so that it's one big span of space instead of a bunch of very small, uh, you know, intimate spaces. Um, and also, also there is an important thing, Alice. Like the mm. the names of the like the names of the authors are on the outside of the building, which ah, again, this cool. is this is part of that kind of uh, how architecture can kind of communicate its ideas. Oh yeah, the the building is like a card file system, right? Wow. Like 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 the building actually tells you what's happening on the inside, and it says that on the outside. Ah uh, like yes, architecture parlant. That's right, Roz. <laughs> Spent all day going back the, back through the notes. Yeah. <laughs> God. Um. So this is one. This is one kind of influence that Furnace uh gets from Hunt. This kind of what's called neo greek architecture, which then. Furnace plays with in his own way throughout his career, um, and the other the other very significant influence from this time period. Next slide, please. Um, is is Viollet le Duc, uh, Eugene Emmanuel Viollet le Duc, who is um, I forget was he was he the royal like the royal architect before he became like the 
you know, the uh, imperial architect before he be- or like before he became the republic architect or whatever. Um, he was a but lot he was, of things. <laughs> he was he was a lot mm. of things to a lot of people and to Justin and me and to a lesser extent Alice. He is the predecessor of Frank Furness because he's 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 actually so he he writes all these books which you know Frank Furness doesn't read books but but they did find one copy of a Viola Leduc <laughs> book in the Frank Furness library. He's like. He's like like wandering around France, you know, sort of like uh, during its political turmoil, like n- hitting churches with hammers. Like they have all <laughs> these like old abbeys and stuff. And this guy, this like weird guy, shows up and he's like, "Yeah, let me just do a bunch of shit to your church." And it's like it's a it's eighteen fucking fifty whatever. What are you gonna do about it? You're bit fucking Les Misérables is happening in the background. You're gonna let that guy work on the church, and so that's what he does, right? <laughs> Right, and he does great work. So, I mean, does it really matter? Um, so, so the, most the, notably the, Notre Dame, I should say. Um, yeah, he did. He did. He did the reconstruction of Notre Dame and a bunch of churches. So he's but so he's mostly doing these reconstructions in in like in the built environment. But his uh, books on architecture this this one's the one that's translated into English. It's called the Discourse. Um, so we're doing discourses now. <laughs> yeah, we're doing discourse right now. <laughs> yeah, so to... page page one: How to construct kink at pride. <laughs> right. So, so what Viola Leduc thinks about is there's this there's this inherent difference with Victorian architecture versus classical or like you know Roman Greek architecture. The the, the Roman Greek architecture has the column, and that's your kind of simplest form of of vertical height, and it it tops out pretty low. You know, the proportions of a column are like eight, uh, eight tall to is to one width. Yeah, if you, if you fixed. see that, yeah, it's, everything's fixed. It's a ratio, it's a ratio system. Yeah, but, for guys but who when can't you, math good to build a building. Yeah. Right. So if you can't math good to build a building, what you do is you're, you're a Gothic architect and you're just kind of figuring it out by stacking little cups on top of each other and then making a heavy thing and then practicing that until you figure out this kind of very thin structural system that's still made out of stone and is very kind of, you know, significantly strong and sturdy, but uh, it's, it's much thinner and you can get much more light uh, that, that penetrates through the building. So, so he basically says, fuck it. What if we're not doing it in stone? We're just going to do that stuff out of cast iron. Here's, Here's what some crazy shit might look like if we did these buildings out yeah. of cast iron and then fills pages with these with these drawings of like, you know, we'll we'll just put a column wherever and have it do whatever. It'll project from the side of the building out into space and then it'll just kind of rise up because we can do all that stuff with the expressive forms of 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 iron now that we have. You, you feel, you feel quite bad for Viola Logic because like he's he's working like for whichever Napoleon. Right. And I keep coming back to Napoleons, I don't know why, I'm a little bit monomaniacal on Napoleons today, but like, one of the Napoleons is like, go into the, you know, uh, uh, you know, the Saint-Chapelle, or Saint-Denis, or whatever, and put all of the faces back on the kings that the Republicans hacked off, because, you know, it's the time for great reaction, right? Just do that. And so he goes and he does that, and the whole time he's in these, like, weird-ass gothic buildings thinking, yeah, but what if I applied all of the sort of like the modern technology to try and achieve the same ends that these idiots who are just making it out of stone did? Uh, what if I did that? And Napoleon's just like, "What? No, don't, don't do that. 
but I don't like when you do that because the reaction thing. <laughs> right. So rather than get canceled by cancel culture, Viola <laughs> Duke writes it all down in in the discourse. He posts about yeah. it. In he the writes discourse. fanfic. He's like, yeah. "This is how I would have done it had I been allowed." <laughs> To like get weird with it, this is what the Saint Chapelle would look like, right? And then this is the one book that Frank Furness convinces himself that he has to read. <laughs> <laughs> and then he does this right before the Civil War happens. It was and then pretty he goes easy because it was it was pretty easy because it was mostly pictures. <laughs> look, He's like reading I, this I, sideways, I, like Gaston. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't make it any easier. There's still a lot of words in these books. Trust me, I went to gra- I went to art history school. Oh god. I don't like words. It's too many words. It's just a couple, yeah. but it's too many. So anyway, right. uh that's and that's when uh that's when the war breaks out. Yes. All right. So instead of uh instead of uh completing his, you know, training, education, so on and so forth, uh Frank Furness has to go to the Civil War. Right. So, you know, we mentioned we mentioned before the uh, Furness family was staunchly abolitionists. You know, they thought this was sort of this holy war against slavery. Right. To the no, point so where you're not getting out of it, then, even if you wanted yeah. to. No. Yeah. So like w- William Henry Furness even attended John Brown's funeral. Um, nice. <laughs> yeah. So but only Frank in, actually enlisted in the war, though, because uh, Horace was deaf. And uh, I forget what happened to the other one. Um, he had like a wife and children. It says I here guess on that, the notes. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So here, here. Um, although I will say Horace uh, decided to try and post through it to some extent because at least uh, Frank had never really shown any like political inclinations before. But Horace had this habit of, um, you know, to uh, there were some local defenders or apologists for slavery uh in in philadelphia and he would just um mail them anonymously pictures of whipped slaves and you say you feel good about that um <laughs> I, I i respect posting but also i i feel a, a deep kinship with anybody who like wants to go to the war can't go to the war tries to like fake their way through going to the war and is told, like, no, obviously you cannot go to the war, and, like, then decides to post, you know? Why wouldn't I identify I'm going to do some posts, yeah. Yeah. So, in 1861, Frank Furness joins the I Company of the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry, right, as a second lieutenant. Um, You know, he came in as an officer because he has, you know, some connections, right? Um, Oh, yeah. His cavalry was commanded by Colonel Richard Henry Rush. Uh, the cavalry was mostly volunteers. The officers are mostly college boys, right? Yeah, you got um, some weird class divisions with like different uh, volunteer formations of the the Union Army. Like you had sort of like silk stocking regiments of like posh boys from New York, sort of forming infantry regiments and stuff like that. Yeah, this um, is kind of one of those, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense, because cavalry is very fashionable, like, then yeah. and, you know, for a long period before and to a certain extent afterwards, so it's good. Yeah. You can sort of, like, dress up in your big tall boots and you can go to, like, dances and stuff. Yeah, so... Uh, well, well, it's important to note, Russia's Lancers are the only ones that carried those... They, they, they were called Russia's Lancers because they literally carried lances. 
They carry medieval siege weapons. Pain in the ass to do. Like I, you're getting ahead of me, Jen. Right, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. You know. So uh, anyway, so uh, all these folks—they're pretty enthusiastic about fighting, though. You know, it's exciting. We're going to go to war. We're going to beat the Confederates. They'll be back by Christmas. They've, they've you know? seen all yeah. of the like sort of Union wave posts, and they're like, "We got like ninety yeah. percent of the railroads, yeah. uh, like ninety-five percent of the factories. It's going to be over in like a month." Yeah. Um, so in November of that year, 1861, George McClellan sends Russia a letter. He says, we're out of guns. Have you considered? <laughs> oh, union procurement, my beloved. You, f- I, I mean, look, <laughs> however bad it is, and on the union side is often very bad, just consider on the other side it's worse. <laughs> yeah. It's like, we're out of guns. You considered arming the men with lances. Thus was Beautiful. created Russia's lancers. <laughs> right? <laughs> so the 6th Cavalry heads out to Hampton Roads. It was an arduous sea voyage, as I understand it. And somehow they passed by both the Monitor and the Merrimack. Um <laughs> You, you, listen, you go to like a depth of more than three feet, you're going to pass by the monitor. Like, they don't have sense, a lot of yeah. sort of like freeboard to work with. But you know what they're I doing? They're, they're going to the Peninsula campaign. They're going to take Richmond from the south. So they get to Hampton Roads, Virginia, and they just sort of sit there. Ladies and gentlemen, General George (laughs) McClellan. George George McClellan is going to George McClellan this up, yeah. (laughs) McClellan writing to Lincoln, like, listen, I... I," And to be honest, here he has more of a point than his usual McClellan-ness, when he's like, I I don't really have guns. I have some of them with, like, lances here. You know, I'm I'm a step away from longbows. Uh, That's more sort of justifiable than... All of the other shit he ever did in his career, which amounts to, I like to stay where I am. I like to have all of my guys march up and down and like polish all of their brasses and stuff. Uh, and I don't like to attack the enemy very much. Which is funny because uh, that's sort of the opposite of how um, there, there's, unfortunately, the cartoon does not uh, uh, survive, but there is uh, uh, anecdotes of, you know, Frank Furness was doing these cartoons while he was in the, uh, in the, um, in company I, because, you know, he's got this artistic training, he does that. And, you know, when they found out they were going to have lances instead of guns, he was like, damn, look at all the people we're going to be able to spike, all these Confederates. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. So no, it's a cartoon Ma- of that. Michael, Michael J. Lewis has the photos of them. I've, I've seen them before. They're really good. Oh. They're really funny. They're not in the books. <laughs> no. Just do your best he, to, like, yeah. John Madden, a guy on a horse, skewering yeah. a guy. It's- Skewering the guy, uh, skewering yeah, several put some guys. guys on the, just put some guys on the lances. Because they'd otherwise they'd have sabers where you could only skewer one guy. Frank's point is they could now skewer several guys. <laughs> so, so reminded unbidden that the sort of Napoleonic Grand Armée slang for a bayonet charge was déjeuner la fourchette, uh, like you know, like breakfast on a fork, right? Because you're like <laughs> skewering a guy. So skewering involved in like nineteenth yes. century warfare. So McClellan finally gets this damn peninsula campaign going. They're going to advance on Richmond down the peninsula off the Chesapeake Bay. It's between the York River and the uh, what's the other one? Uh, Ohio. 
the James, uh, you know, and they're going to head up towards Richmond. Um, and of course, you know, he had no idea how to use cavalry. Right. No. Uh, and it showed uh, a lot of what their <laughs> company wound up doing was like guarding the quarters of officers and stuff oh like that. Yeah. <laughs> <Real> <laughs> you boring. Just, you, you got into this for the skewering. You barely get to skewer anyone. Oh, don't worry. They they see some combat later. Um, so they managed to skip the horrible defeat at Chancellorsville, right? Because they were employed instead on Stoneman's Raid, where they sort of swept around the back of the Confederate lines and burned everything they could, hopefully to um, sever the Orange and Alexandria Railroad at Gordonsville, right? This is all in Virginia. Um now, Major General George Stoneman thought it would draw out the rebels' cavalry and force them into this fruitless chase, which was allow the Union infantry a fighting chance against rebel infantry. But the thing is, G- General Lee was like, "Yeah, we don't care about those guys," and they sent all his cavalry to fuck up the Union uh, infantry rather than deal with uh, the Sixth Pennsylvania Cavalry. <laughs> so, you know that that one didn't work. Yeah, um, it, the thing is, if, if I was subject to a diversionary raid, I would simply ignore it. Uh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> as it turns out. Um, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't like Lee. Uh, I, I have, you know, sort of less respect for his generalship than a lot of, sort of uh, you know, readers of history, history likers, but in, in this instance, I'm afraid you do have to hand it to him to just be like, <laughs> no, I don't, no, thank you, I don't believe uh, in nah, any of uh, that uh, shit. I, yeah, I don't mind. That's not real. <laughs> uh, Frank Furness, though, he had an issue, which was that, you know, he had the architecture brain. He knew a bunch about logistics and stuff like that. So he winds up being assigned as aide-de-camp to General Stoneman. You know, he's good at logistics and stuff. And one of the things which is sort of uh, noted throughout this campaign is that uh, camps where Frank Furness was in charge tended to be a little better built, a little nicer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's putting curlicues on the tents and stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Stoneman fucked up badly enough that his health declined. He had the relinquished command. He was replaced by Albert Alfred Pleasanton, right? Furness uh, was then reassigned to Company F, which was commanded by Captain Charles Davis. Uh, Richard Henry Rush was replaced by Major Robert Morris Jr. They took away the lances. They gave him Sharp's carbines. The type Ooh, of okay, now we're getting into it. Yeah. So, Company F winds up at the Battle of Brandy Station. I'm not sure quite where that is. I'm not a Civil War expert. Um, But they wind up riding right up to the Confederate lines, have a nasty bit of hand-to-hand combat around some artillery pieces. You know, they wind up having to use the sabers and stuff. They suffer some pretty heavy losses. Yeah, I mean, Brandy Station, it's it's difficult because fucking everything in the Civil War is called Brandy something. Because, like, all of these are happening around hamlets that are, like, named, like, Dick's Bullshit Hamlet, or, like, Brandy yes. Station, or, like, Brandy Wine, <laughs> yeah. or whatever. This is, like, the big cavalry-on-cavalry engagement, uh, so, like, sets up the beginning of the Gettysburg campaign. Um, yeah. And, yeah, n- not not great. There's a lot of, sort of, like, Nasty places to be in the Civil War, but like cavalry in battle, again, particularly not one of them. It's the kind of thing where you get like, you know, four horses shot out from under you in an afternoon sort of thing. Yeah. It, um, and uh, I also, important point here is that 
Frank Furness is now first lieutenant Frank Furness, not second lieutenant, um, when he gets reassigned to Company F. Um, now, Confederate com- cavalry start to surround them, but that cavalry was cut off by another Union regiment, right? But when the dust settled, 140 men, including Captain Davis, were dead, and Major Morris Jr. had been captured. Uh, so now Captain Frank Furness took the lead of Company F. Oh yeah, and at this point, this feels like strewn with like dead guys, dead horses, all this. Oh yeah, because uh, like your, your typical civil union, uh, civil union, your typical like civil war use of cavalry is yeah. like de facto dragoons. You like you ride to the battle, you get off the horse, you fight yeah. as infantry. Whereas these guys manage to like stay on the horse the whole time, and uh, it you know sort of looks like fucking I don't even know what, but it looks bad. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it was at this battle, at at least one battle, uh, Frank had his horse shot out from under him. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's like, yeah, you, you, it's sort of occupational hazard by far. But, uh, yes. More of a hazard for the horse, I think, because it dies. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, listen, it's only a hazard for the horse once. Um, uh, this is true, yeah. Right. Um, eventually, his unit makes it up to Gettysburg. They held him in reserve for two days because they were like the reserve forces, right? But the Lancers were eventually sent out to hold off a division of Confederate troops who were set to support Pickett's charge. Uh, This wound up as a sort of nasty but successful skirmish that prevented Pickett's charge from being uh, more successful than it was, which, as far as I know, Pickett's charge didn't work, right? No. No, that's that's what I thought. Famously deadly. uh, Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Um, now, the tide of the war was turning at this point. There's still time for our boys in blue to fuck up, though, right? I know exactly um, which battle you're going to tell me about. Yeah, uh, yeah, so... <laughs> I like Grant. I like Grant a lot, right? But the problem with America is that like, it, it wins like America, which is to say that it does the Battle of Cold Harbor. <laughs> yes. The Lancers find themselves at the Battle of Cold Harbor, wherein General Grant sent wave after wave of his men to attack the Confederate killbots until they reached their predetermined kill limit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's there's no reason for it whatsoever. It's just purely all all they have to do, all Lee has to do is just entrench. He's like outside of Richmond, and the only thing that's on the line is like how much longer the war lasts in terms of like weeks or months. Right, and all he has to do is just sit there and like kill people, and that's what he does. And like mm-hmm. it, it works very well because it's easy to do. It's it's like it's such an unforced error. Yeah, it's uh, it's like it's sort of shades of World War One to come. There's like an actual yes. no man's yeah, yeah. land and all this stuff. Absolutely, you look at like sieges of Richmond, sieges of Vicksburg. There's you, you can absolutely see sort of like the you know uh, you know phantasms of World War One in them. Yeah. And this is the first time Frank Furness does something noble but stupid, um, which is, you know, just across the Union barricades, a Confederate attacker was slowly and agonizingly bleeding out. And he was just like, you know, th- this is, again, it's a bad situation, this battle. Uh, no one had managed to um, sort of retrieve the dead and the wounded. Um, and, you know, eventually he's just like, I can't stand to see this man suffering because um, he like, you know, 
been limping up and down. He's uh, hold on. This is from page forty-eight in the book where he explains it. Uh, one of the books. It's, it's it's good. It's good officering as well because it's gonna like fuck up your men. Um, and like if you yourself are getting rattled by it, but like. The, the sort of the laws of war, very much not a thing in the Civil War. Um, you know, sort of Andersonville testifies to that. So the the thing, the done thing, right? If the guy is bothering you as you shoot him, right? <laughs> like, yeah, this is true. Uh, you said, "What moved my pity more than in the countless other cases which we almost daily witnessed was that when the poor fellow was struck, believing himself near death, he tried to struggle to his knees and clasped his hands upright in prayer." What man with memories of bedtime and his mother's gentle hand would see that sight unmoved? Mm. Uh, what he wound up doing was climbing over the barricades and uh, crawling through the no man's land and applying a tourniquet to the man's leg where he was bleeding out. Fucking yeah, and then that's this. the that's yeah. the soldier that that um, that he meets meets with years later, right? I'm not sure. I, the, the book says we don't know what happened to that soldier. Um, okay, then that was a Trevelyan yeah. station. This is this is uh, Architecture in the Violent Mind by uh, Michael J. Lewis, by the way. Um, so I, no one even bothers trying to shoot at him. Uh, you know, this is one of those one of those old fashioned chivalry things. I guess I don't know. <laughs> mm. Well, I mean, also bear in mind, I, I think probably in terms of military history, one of the quotes that I keep coming back to is when I think it was Sword Beach on D-Day the British landed at it, they brought a bagpiper with them, uh, and they, they interviewed one of the German sort of like machine gunners after the fact, and he's like oh yeah, we saw the guy marching up and down with the bagpipes we didn't shoot him because we thought he was crazy like <laughs> <laughs> like we thought he had gone mad, so we didn't we didn't shoot him because it felt unfair yeah. I, I think that's sort of like <laughs> perhaps the same vibe, I don't know ah uh, well in that vein, what gets him the Medal of Honor is the Battle of Trevelyan Station, Should right? Say. Medal, Medal yeah. of Honor, not as big of a deal in the Civil War, because it was the only one the army gave you, more or less. They, they, uh, still, had, they still had a lot of room in Arlington Cemetery back then. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, there was, it, well, there was all the room, because Arlington Cemetery was Robert E. Lee's plantation. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So... To make sort of a long story short here, uh, the Cavalry Corps intended to cut the Virginia Central Railroad at Trevelyan Station, right? Um, they encountered Confederate cavalry, and the fighting eventually progressed to this point where the Confederates held a farmhouse and the Union held its outbuildings, right? Um, company C sent a man out to crawl on hands and knees to keep out of view of the Confederates. Uh, to report to Captain Furnace that they were out of ammunition, and if the position fell, it might jeopardize the whole operation. So, Frank Furnace, he's got this large and impressive logistical and architectural head, and he decided to use his head, right? Which is, what if he put the box of ammo on his head and just sprinted over there? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just gonna take the thing that explodes, put it as close as possible in my head, just give it a shot. That's gonna be a so, heavy box of ammunition, too. Yes. So he and Captain Walsh Mitchell both grabbed a box of ammo and just did that. They just sprinted over, gave him the ammo, 
Then they, <laughs> then they sprinted back. <laughs> um, we don't know what the Confederates thought of this, but they were confused and surprised enough that when when they did the first pass, there wasn't that much gunfire. It's just like, what are these idiots doing? <laughs> They're officers. <laughs> Imagine calling timeout on the battlefield. <laughs> and on the on a on our way back, on our way back, they uh they got shot at a whole lot more. Uh someone managed to put a bullet through Walsh Mitchell's hat. Um <laughs> I, the only way that fine. makes sense to me. If it's cavalry, it makes sense to me that that's like a hardy hat. So it's like a big fucking cowboy hat looking thing. Yeah. But that's pretty prominent too. It's got like a like a Sort of a gold, a gold like cord on it and everything. Like, she's the most most prominent uh, target imaginable. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this is one of the most incredibly stupid things imaginable, and it worked flawlessly. Um, they were able to hold the position. Uh, the I love military itself. history. <laughs> <laughs> the battle. You just, you just get to like the sort of the, the the history of the engagement, and it gets to, and then this guy, sort of blue link with a named person, decided to like go off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fuck it. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And this was this this was this is widely regarded like that was a suicide mission. It didn't. It, oh, yeah. There's no chance that it was gonna work. Like, <laughs> it's very confusing. It's one of those things that you would sort of you would discourage now on the basis that you're like, you're too important to get killed for that. Like, yeah. ideally, right. you want to avoid getting killed at all, but in particular, you, you send a guy for that, you know? Yeah. Right, and it, it's like it's like, um, I think I think a couple different historians, but I know Mike Lewis points points to this incident as like, oh no, the motherfucker was like trying to die out there. Like every once in a while, he was just like looking, looking for an opportunity, um, but he failed the skill issue. Uh, it didn't quite get himself killed. Um, <laughs> now, in fact, didn't even get a scratch on him. Uh, so, you know, the battle itself had mixed results. I don't know if you could say Trevelyan Station was a victory for the Union. They did destroy the railroad, but it was back up and running in two weeks. Um, so, but also the war was like winding down. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone saw this was uh, uh, this was not going good places for the Confederates. Um, but at this point, this is late in the war. The original recruits for the Lancers had about three months left. Uh, they went to go fight in the Shenandoah Valley. Right, eventually they got caught up to by Mosby's raiders. Um, and Mosby's raiders took out most of their supplies. And then most of the records of the unit, right? Which is Fucking why we don't Confederate know. Confederate cavalry. I mean, this is like Nathan Bedford Forrest's shit, too. It was the original recruiting base of the first clan. Fucking assholes. Some of the worst war criminals in the war, incidentally. Um, they took out most of the records. Uh, and Frank Furness actually wound up at this point with a desk job in Washington, D.C., trying to put those records back together. Um... <laughs> But then, you know, his term of enlistment ended October 4th, 1863, and he decided to go back to Philadelphia, trade in the lance for the T-square and compass. He was going to go back to architecture. 
was going to return to Philadelphia. Yeah, after, after some time off doing nice relaxing stuff like fighting the Civil War, he was deciding <laughs> yeah. to go back to the real, the real cut and thrust of architecture. Well, yes. he goes back. He goes back for about two years, and then he he spends another year at Richard Morris Hunt's atelier um, before going into like actual private practice. Um, well, I, that's, a I, gap, I, that's a gap in resume, though. Yeah. Well, there's an inter interesting uh, anecdote here uh, from from the uh, Frank Furness architecture in the Violent Mind book, which is um, he he learned to swear at Hunt's office. And then actually use that to uh, maintain military discipline more effectively than he would have otherwise. Oh, that's incredible! <laughs> yeah, that book that book is full of just the best the best little asides and quotes. Right. Um. Uh, do you want to oh, show off the next the next slide, Rob? Oh yeah, yeah. We had a we had a picture here of the lancers with their lances. Um. Our boy Frank is right here. He was at this point captain of F Company, but this is him with I Company, which he he liked better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just doing epic troop shit, you know. Yes. And then uh, I, on the previous slide is actually the monument at Gettysburg that he designed uh, for his own unit. You can see they got the lances here, even though they weren't using them by that point. Uh, right. So, I mean, those are those them. are those are ironwork. You know, um, yeah. they were definitely emblematic of the of the troop, but the, like the, the the flag part of those flags is actually metal. Um, oh, and then go and then yeah. So there's that there's that slide of the company, and then that's a like a Harper's illustration. Um, just just showing them all. Just like yeah, we did, we didn't have enough guns, but we had more guns than the other guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And and in oh, and hindsight, so, quite quite a fashionable quite a fashionable regiment, you know. Yes. Very right. anachronistic. Uh, it's very fun. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. And so so like I I like to think I, have I don't to talk know about exactly what zouaves it is. at some point, my favorite anachronism of the Civil War, because motherfuckers loved a zouave. Um and yeah, that's that's a whole story in itself. I've just had my microphone taken away by Pizza Boy. I got it back, though. He's excited to talk about Zouaves. Yes. Um, uh, the other important thing... Yeah, right. So so yeah. Frank Furness enters the war... Or I think I think on the left is a picture when he's like about 20, like maybe in the late 1850s, early 1860s. Um, the one on the right is when he comes back, and he looks like, he looks like Roz after like a six-week bender. He's drunk and mad. <laughs> he also has a gun now. Like, yes. <laughs> and, and so and so there's all these there's all these stories that um just about like what working at his office was like, right? So he comes out of the he comes out of like the war in Richard Morrison's office swearing like crazy. Uh his his office was at the end of the hall and he and he had a uh like a was it was it a, like a deer head or something, or was it a target? He would shoot the far a, end a of a target he would shoot on the, the far back, end for practice. There was a target on the back of the elevator shaft, I believe, is the uh, <laughs> the, the story. He painted a target on the back of the elevator shaft 
and he would shoot at it when he was annoyed. Yeah, I, <laughs> so, I won't, so I won't say that a sort of like national PTSD is a good thing, right? I won't right. say that, but it leads you to some entertaining places and tracing the trajectories of like all of these Civil War guys as they come out of the war into their new thing. Like, the Civil War made Ambrose Bierce a goth. Like it turned him into a goth girl. There's, yes. People people really got weird with it because like after you've seen all of this shit, after you've seen the sort of like horrors that prefigure World War One, you know, people just like fucking stumbling around with their guts hanging out and shit. You you realize you can just do whatever you want, laws are fake, uh, and you can kill anyone who tries to stop you. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And so so Frank Furness embraced that with uh with with aplomb. And not only not only that he did all of those things he 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 wore the the loudest plaids that he could find was specifically <laughs> what what was said about him like that photo that image on the right you can't see it but he is wearing a a checkered plaid suit um <laughs> the other yeah he would shoot he would shoot the gun and so interns and and drafts the draftsmen in the office had to be careful when they were crossing the hall Check both ways. <laughs> and to my knowledge, no accidents. So, I, I guess the system worked. <laughs> they don't. This is I the don't thing, think right? They, the, the laws of firearm safety, right, hadn't been formulated yet. But yeah, I right. think Frank Furness had like come up with a uh, like a workaround for them, which is you know, if the, if the first the first rule of firearms is like assume more firearms are loaded, the second one is like never point a firearm at anything you're not willing to destroy. Well, that second one you don't have to worry about if you're willing to destroy everything. <laughs> <laughs> one quote yeah. from the book that was like, uh, well, Frank Furness had probably destroyed more buildings at this point than he would ever build. <laughs> God. So uh, the uh, the other important thing is that he comes out of the war and the Russia's Lancers group with like a stacked Rolodex of people who either went on to become Philadelphia industrial merchants or a couple people who were like, you know, the 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 wealthy kid from a wealthy family in Philadelphia. So he he came out he came out of the war with like a huge black book of new you know new people to get uh to get some kind of commission from later in life and that was the other really really important thing from the war was that he he milked the hell out of all of the all of those people that oh, yeah. he met and did really really impressive work for them. But we'll be getting to that in due time. Uh, because we have to take a quick, uh, you know, a quick side sidebar into religious architecture. I think that's probably the thematic start of our uh, journey what back to architecture fuck? school. Right. What so, the fuck is this? He he built them a mosque. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He built he built the Jews a mosque for doing temple. He built a he built a he built a Christian mosque for the Jews. Yes. Yeah. He built. Yeah. It's actually yeah. it's actually a cathedral with yeah. mosque informed elements. It's got so, a plaque on it, like fucking Westminster. That's incredible. Right. So the one on the left is the Germantown Unitarian Church. It's from 1866. It's the first commission that he has, his firm actually does. He partners up with that guy, John Frazier, um, and also George Hewitt, who goes on to design. George Hewitt really takes on the like architectural practice around churches and religious buildings a lot of the time. 
Um, but but so you have these very like academic. Yeah, you have this like very academic example of like a gothic church. It's literally something out of like a Pugin, uh, uh, Augustus Pugin, something or other. But yeah, like it, then, it slips off the page next to his second one. Like it's 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 yeah. fine, but it's yeah, like yeah, no, you didn't even church. notice it. No. Right, normal. So yeah, right. So there there's normal ass church, and then yeah. then his friends are his dad's friend. There's... There's a normal ass church, and then there's a very normal church. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So in 1868, that's when Rodef Shalom Synagogue on the right gets constructed. Um, the rabbi's name is Marcus Jastrow, and he was a friend of William Henry Furness, right? Because of this, hey, you're you're not uh you're not exactly Catholic in this city. Let's get together and hang out and talk about stuff that's like interesting. And also Jastrow was um uh very progressive as a as a rabbi so he was kind of in the same milieu reform judaism at this point as like a an actual thing as opposed to like handfuls of guys is only what like 20 30 years old right so this is you know novel in all sorts of ways right right and and i i don't know enough about the history of it but there is you know significant this the 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 congregation of Rodef Shalom is very similar to the people who are you know these kind of new industrialists in Philadelphia. They're a lot a lot of a lot of wealth, a lot of um, you know this this is a huge building campaign to put something like this up. And you see, kind of, if you go to the next slide, um, this is just Rodef Shalom. So um, those photos on the right are from or on the left are from the interior. Um, it was. It was demolished to make way for an even cooler building, so that's kind of cool. But um, you can building? see here, Rodef Shalom. Oh, broad and green. the 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 new one's like a different Byzantine church uh, or oh, Byzantine structure, but it's much more. Um, oh no, it's just it doesn't look this, like a church. Though. Also, oh, the, it's the, it's incredible. Is... So <sighs> there's like fifty different things going on here, but the first one is. Uh, my guy really likes sort of Andalusian forms, right? Yeah. Like he, you've got the like I I I don't remember the name of the arch, but with sort of like the circular circular arch at the top over a doorway. Uh, you've got the like uh weird minaret. I can only describe it as. Uh, you've got the like the arbloc, the like alternating bands of like red and white stone. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like a like. Yeah, it's it's really striking, right? And so this is the thing. Like you can see, you can see some of the influences, but you you immediately also see like, oh, there's thirty or forty different things going on, right? And this is the first. This is the first place. Yeah, they've got the horseshoe arches, but even that the minaret looking thing almost looks like it's from like of you know it's from uh, like a Venetian Gothic building or 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 something out mm. of um out of Florence, right? It looks like a baptistry. Um, so it's all these things kind of working together. And then, and then this, the furniture too, he designs all the furniture that we still have in the building. And that incorporates all of these kind of, um, non-referential flowers alongside with these things where it's like, yeah, we're referencing parts of the building that are on the outside of the building, but it's furniture. It, the, the, the whole place is just really, you can see the beginning of it. Right. And then, mm. so, and then that, that kind of mode of architecture is, uh, they call it Moorish in that time period because a lot of it is based specifically on the Alhambra. But um, 
Yeah, I went to Andalusian, so I'm, I'm, I feel very gratified, you know, that I was right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so, what, what's that? One, one thing I'm noticing here is he's done Moorish motifs on a hammer beam roof. Huh. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and then he got that hanging dome, too. <laughs> he, he's, he's put this dome on there as well, like, yeah. uh, which is sort of Islamic, but not in a form that I remember seeing anywhere. No, it's like an onion I, dome from St. Peter's in Russia. It, yeah, oh, it's, yeah, it's yeah. sort of like half and half, sort of like Russian. It's, it's, like, it's like something you'd see in like Bukhara or something. It's weird as hell. We're doing, we're doing, we're not doing as good as Frank here. We need to get a Russian Orthodox guy on a podcast now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, 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 a, a Christian, a, 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 it's a, 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 yeah, a Muslim church built for the Jews. Uh, you know, that is our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the next, the next slide's another good example of this kind of like, you, you can see that obvious what's called Moorish or like Neo-Islamic and, you know, that influence yeah. pervasive. Mm. This is a pavilion for the 1876 Centennial Exposition. It's the B Brazilian pavilion. It's the Brazilian right. pavilion and it cost a million. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't cost that much. That was way too much money back then, but I thought it cost, it'd be funny. It cost a lot that. of money, though. It was, yeah. it was a nice building. Surprisingly, compromising, I'm starting a great architectural tradition of compromising your principles, because Brazil didn't abolish slavery until 1899. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Just, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, there's the, there's there's a lot that has been written about, like, world's fairs and, uh, you know, uh, borrowing from other cultures, stealing from other cultures, just straight-up appropriating shit, right? This is this is a perfect example of that, but you see how it's 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 got that same kind of form, but it really is trying to to pull those elements out and just use them as those processional arches that that frame the space. And you you can see kind of all the different areas where um, just oversized ornament has really been applied to kind of play up that um, the the traditional Brazilian. Islamic fortress. I mean, this exactly. this is what oh. uh, th this is what Bolsonaro thinks the Altiplano is going to look like in like a year's time after Lula's back in. <laughs> yeah, this whole thing was also like gi like gilded and had a bunch of the the like very vivid green paint and a bunch of the very vivid red paint on it. Like this whole thing was like polychrome. Barely describes it. Like it was just a crazy a crazy decorated color scheme. This is like one of the first things that gets him like national attention because you know he's uh he's done this this pavilion which Brazil shelled out a lot of money for. I mean Emperor yeah. Pedro II came to visit it and everything. Um, you know, you know, and, and, and he he starts on, you know, developing his style of extremely weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is this is where it's like, yeah, so this these images show up in those the like um the books of pictures that you would buy at the Centennial to bring back to show people that you went. Um, and in those photo scrapbooks, it would have, you know, Frank Furness's Brazilian pavilion. Um, so these, these really did get, get all the way around the United States. Just, just a really fun phrase to say, you know? Yes. It, it would be, yeah, it would Frank, be a Frank good um, Brazilian show. exposition pavilion. Yeah. 
But so so then like a bunch of a bunch of his like most important commissions happen right around this 1875-76 period, preparing for the centennial and then all these kinds of things that were happening in construction. Like there were a bunch of these uh contests that were occurring at the same time in in Philadelphia for for large large buildings. Um he was chosen to do POF, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. Next slide, please. Yes. Um, you can see that Ooh. it's a very similar kind of massing to the Brazilian pavilion, right? You got the, the, the tall piece. You got the two side pieces. You've got these entrances. Right. <sighs> yeah. Did Frank Furness know that, like, if he had wanted to, he could have been Muslim? Like, he didn't... <laughs> <laughs> was was he aware of this, or was was he just like the people who at me? That's like, well, how are you Muslim and why? Like, did, I, you, I'm, you, I'm, you... I'm pretty sure the rules were stricter back then. <laughs> maybe he, maybe he was, and he just didn't tell anyone. You know, a decent chance, hmm. I would say. We'll uh, have to find because, out if he like, recited the Shahada on his on his. Yeah, unhesitatingly, yeah. even now, his spirit. You know, I did, but like. Yeah, no, I it, it once again it's it's looking it's looking Muslim to me. Well, they, with, the, not, these ones not, not these entirely, ones really do. not exclusively, but like no. yeah. a lot of these really do look very that quote unquote Islamic. Sometimes it's from like a Venetian Gothic kind of reference point, which is what John Ruskin um, was really heavily promoting in in his architectural treatises. Um, they borrow all sorts of details, right? Like the, those little, yeah, those little inset, um, uh, like bas relief panels are very. Th mm. Those are like like Renaissance details, you know. Um, and then there's all these those the neo Greek stuff where it's like those big circles are are references to classical architecture, and those will show up all over the place. But this is really just like a pure mismatch. And it's it's a pure mismatch because the the underlying structure of the building, which has this very complicated program to it, it's it's partially um, you know studios and places where people learn how to do art or can look at a naked woman and um, you know that's that's very it's very scary for artists during this time period. This was a school where they were doing that, and a lot of people got in trouble for it. For those who are not initiated, the program is a word architects use to say what the building is supposed to do. Right. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Roz. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that a lot. So actually, wait. If you go to the next, uh, right. So if you go to the next slide, that's actually the like. There's a plan of the building up in the corner. Uh, it's, again, like you look at this and you can pick out the one thing that like he's decided to take and then make weirder. This is Saint Chapelle. He's just like he's looked at the inside of the Saint Chapelle and he's gone. Oh, okay, what if I like did a bunch of other stuff what on if top I of made it? it weirder? Uh, this yeah. building, yeah, what if... it, this building is an incredible experience. Just the way the space is used. You come in through this like sort of narrow space you climb the stairs all of a sudden Huge you're staircase. in this room with this weird wall treatment it's incredible yeah you, know, that's, you got all and, the and, columns and stuff you know and it's, it's really, a short it's really building good. because there's there's skylights everywhere right you need to have a ton of natural light for both looking at art or or doing art and so this building has skylights pretty much in every surface and there's um, the other thing is that during the during the daytime, if you visit here, you go from a light space, which is outside, to a dark and confined space, very back dark. to a large and light space. 
Um, right. And it's, know, it's, it's one of these interiors. The <laughs> right. So like that photo in the upper right is pretty true. Like the lights are on all the time uh, in those like those little like outdoor looking light globes. If you if you go to the next slide, all of all of these things were also individually designed. Right. So those light mm. globes are or the, the lampposts are up in the upper right and they have all these detail like stringy details on them spiky details the, the, the building's full of modern elements like truly modern things too like so viola Leduc could could only theorize about putting the iron on the building frank furnace is actually making cast iron columns and putting them on the building and, and all this technology steel beams, just exposed steel beams yeah with, with a little bit of ornament fuel. on them yeah. yeah this building was not a concern for uh airplanes um oh the the air conditioning is also integrated into these columns so there's all these like technological, really, really modern and forward thinking technological things happening alongside of this real commitment to making the space work for two, you know, these two separate uses, both as a place for displaying art and then a place for making art. And so it would be just heating at the time. It wouldn't be air conditioning. Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah. This is, I think this is right around they start to do some things with, with nah, carrier like didn't like, uh, maybe, okay, so maybe, yeah, because Mark Twain had like central heating, but he didn't have uh, air conditioning. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so you had, you had like sort of this primitive forced air system that I think was possible at the time. It wouldn't probably, have been radiators. Something like that, yeah. But you would not have any cooling capability. Um, okay. I know it smelled crazy in there. <laughs> I'm gonna have to double check because I th yeah. there maybe it's maybe it's simply ventilation places for some kind of find out first first yeah. modern electrical air conditioning unit 1901. Okay. Yeah, this is well before that. Yeah, this would this would be a non-modern uh, air conditioning unit. But anyway, um, you could maybe it's, use it's like the... ice, like I mean, giant giant block of ice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, I really don't know off the top, uh, off the top of my head, but but yeah, this whole building is crazy. Uh, I think that's about all I can coherently say about it. I really structure. like if it. If you can go, it's go. It's a good. Yeah. It's a really good building. Yeah. Oh, there's a bunch of. Um, this is one of the first buildings where sandblasting is used uh, as part of the architectural ornament. You can see it in that center image in the, uh, like the side of the staircase. Um, there's that repeating pattern of the the flowers that's in there. Um, mm -hmm. That was all sandblasted in. So so it's you know you're not having people carving stone at this point. It's like a modern mode of production. You know you have these these columns that almost look like they're pistons. Um, it, it's it's a really it's a really incredible space. It's very uh, dynamic, you might say, and it's very industrial. It's one of these things where you know you you, you sort of um, you know, there's this concept of traditional architecture and it's like, ah, oh, this sort of Victorian bullshit, you know, but a lot of that was sort of backward thinking. This is very forward thinking, you know, right. mm. um, you know, Frank is doing stuff that no one's ever done before because he hasn't figured out how to read a book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Aside, of course, from the Quran. Uh, yes. Yes. Yes, that and that and Viola uh, Leduc's uh, picture book. Yeah, he can read pictures pretty good, just like me. Um, 
so like I said, the this 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 period there's a bunch of commissions that come through, and this is really when he's starting to make a name for himself. Um, this is one of my favorites. This is the Guarantee Safe Deposit Company. Um, you can see in that postcard is, image on, yeah. This is my favorite sort of like phase of his career is, sort of perfectly oblivious, nice bank manager going, yeah, we need a new bank. Frank Furness, sort of fresh off of like firing a shitload of like rounds out of a revolver into the yeah. back of his own lift shaft, going, "I'll give you a fucking bank." Yeah, yeah. you want a bank? I'm going to give you a bank the likes of which you've never seen. Yeah, it's I was like, at oh. Cold Harbor. Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Good chance right. the bank manager was too. Um, yeah. <laughs> Different so, ways of coping, you know. Some people, some people open safety deposit companies to cope. Some people create a sort of a strange Cordovan sort of like uh, storehouses. Also, look at how big the people are. Look at how big the yeah. people are in the photo, and look at how big the people are in the postcard. The building is actually <laughs> that big. <laughs> What I really like is the font on this thing, you know, on this oh, advertisement here, you know, that's very mm. fun. And a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, I think we got a couple more in this presentation where you have this sort of, this sort of late Victorian font thing going on mm. with these advertisements. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is... This is a person. I I just love this building so much. Uh, you can see that it's in like a very interesting spot in the city. Um, Carpenters Hall, which is a historic site, is just like in the alleyway behind here. Um, that yeah. one postcard has a picture of it. But this is really where the banking then right right next to this would have been the second bank of the United States, right? Uh, is that the second bank? It's in that complex, but I think it's on the other. It's around the corner. Yeah. The famously yeah. easy to 3D model and texture Second Bank uh, of the United second States. Second Bank of the United States, yeah. It's a good building. So, so yeah, this this We're whole... We're going to make so, a video about it and its sisters, you know? Hmm. Ah, probably not. We're not, we're not going there. Let's <laughs> no, um, not go there. Not today. <laughs> so, but, but, so there's this, there's this form of a banking hall that starts to get developed, you know, the, the, there's a kind of coherent form of these banks that that they end up taking. Um, it's not that interesting, so I won't talk about it. But the yeah, coolest the thing... Big, the big hall of money that makes you psychologically... like You go in the building, and the building says to you, you don't want to rob me. You don't want to rob me so right. bad. Yeah. <laughs> There's no possible way you could possibly rob me. So if you go to the next slide, you see the interior of, of what's known as like the, the apotheosis or whatever of Frank Furness Banks. This is this the is Provident like, Life and Trust Company. Yeah, this is like the one the critics are like, this is the best one. Um, Hard you know. to blame them. Look, fucking look at that this thing. Is, even even true, when it was 100 yeah. years old, it was goth as hell and totally amazing. He, he, he made a goth temple of money and then the city of Philadelphia decided to never clean it to make it more goth. Yes. Yeah. God. I love the the vault on the like balcony too. Just like you can see where the money is. Can you get to it? No. Well, I believe right. the uh the the balcony was actually added later. That was not part of the original design, mm -hmm. but I that is pretty funny though. 
Yeah. Oh, just like a, a, a sort of a scheme to taunt the the John Dillingers of this world to be like, you want this? You want this? Huh? Huh? I, I'm dangling a big sack of cash off the balcony on a fishing rod. So, so that's how the banking hall. That was one of the things about it is there's the there's the second floor ba- balcony in the back where the, the clerk works, the the person who's in charge, and that is where the vault like is in some way, shape, or form, whether it's on the second floor, first floor, whatever. Um, and it was very much that. I'm watching everything that happens here. I'm overseeing the entire bank and making sure all the money goes out. But but you can see it's just a box. It's it's a very big box with a big skylight. With a, yeah, an interesting sort of like coffered sort of roof thing. Um, when you got the the facade is where you sort of see uh, Frank Furness is like really inverting a lot of um, uh, generally accepted rules about architecture. Like for instance, the heaviest part of the building is at the top. Right at the bottom, comes up with uh, there are columns. They're very short. (laughs) It it, it has something of the uh, possible interesting future bonus episode. um, Nicholas Hawksmore about it, right? Might be John Hawksmore. I don't remember, but it it has something of the Hawksmore Church about it. You know the 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 one in Whitechapel that looks like it's about to fall on you. Um, Exactly. It's sort of like mildly terrifying, slightly, you know, satanic. Um, mm-hmm. It looks a bit like the sort of the uh, someone uh, fed an AI in the prompt, show me the skull of Sam the Eagle. It, it's weird. <laughs> it's a weird building. It's really it's good. So good. It's so good. You gotta think, yeah. like, you know, look in this postcard at the building next door to it, which is four stories tall. And like goes up two thirds of the height of this, which is basically a two story building. Yeah, meet meet yeah. your new neighbor, the Egyptolonian um, sort of like ziggurat bank company. Yeah, this this is the hard part about Frank Furness is like, well, can we assign this some sort of style? And you know, your your mind just starts short circuiting at that point. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, because this has all the same things, right? It's got that weird. Kind of, kind of vaguely Islamic arch over the doorway. It's got that three-way, you know, that three-part entrance. It's just, but it's just, it's just so good. Do people have like any sort of like? There have to be people who think that this art is like conspiratorial in nature, right? Because there's a bunch of architecture that is like I, I live in a city where the big cemetery is one big sort of Masonic allegory. There have to be people who like have looked at this and been like, "This is like Denver International Airport, but nineteenth century." Uh, oh, Frank uh, Furness is sending me messages through my fillings. <laughs> well, it got demolished, so no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If yeah. anyone wants to like gin up a retrospective conspiracy theory about yeah. this one, <laughs> we didn't. We didn't get into the good era of conspiracy by the time that most of. Frank Furness's work was torn down for one reason or another. It was a, right. it was a more innocent time when people were just like, "Yeah, no, that's just a crazy guy." <laughs> just a crazy before, guy. Yeah. yeah, it was before MK Ultra was really going. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he, forgot, he forgot how to do architecture down. because of the Civil War, and so he just made this weird building. Yeah, the Civil War <laughs> was the original MK Ultra. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, no, the original version. Send you, of this, you the, through Cold Harbor. Yeah. Well, remember. <laughs> Remember us. The original version of this was supposed to be um, much like how modernism, uh, you know, modernism is a direct result of the horrors of World War One. 
this building is a direct result of the horrors of the Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> it's indescribable in its conceptualization. Yeah, it's, it, you know what it is? It's like, not enough architects like had the Civil War experience Frank Furness did. And if they had, this would have been like a movement, perhaps. Seriously. This is true, yeah. This is what happens when you have your, your siege warfare on sort of like a limited scale, rather than across the whole front. <laughs> yeah, so I don't really have anything more coherent to say about this building yeah. than other than, look at this building. It's pretty cool. Mm. It's a pretty cool building. Um, it's it's one of his best. Um, it's uh, it's 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 really good. I mean, if you look at like if you want to look at like one building that is Frank Furness, it is this. He's working at his best. It's a it's a building that's big, but it's not that big. It's um you know on sort of this twenty foot twenty five foot wide row house lot. Um, he he got really good at these banking halls, but also like you know uh, just a, a building which is you know, has certain confines, it has, it's in a certain way. He did a bunch of these that were good, but this is the best one. Yeah. Plus, look at the uh, font on this thing. Incredible font. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the font on, does it, do you see the font on the building anywhere? Is that shown? Yeah. No, no it was so. on the last one, but not on this one. Yeah, not on this right. one. It doesn't have any signs at all. You wouldn't fucking know this was a bank absent the fact that it's got a bunch of money in it. Yeah, yeah I was about to I, say, if you look at this and like, does a cult live here? <laughs> yeah, is this is this where like Doctor Strange lives? You yeah. Know? <laughs> Doctor Strange's yeah. house has fucking one weird window, and this has existed in the world. It shows you the sort of limited imagination of Marvel. That's true. Well, this yeah. is we'll get to how the uh the architectural establishment shat all over our friend Frank. Um, that's later, though. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's important to note is that if uh, Justin becomes mayor of Philadelphia, we're going to put this building back. I'm going to put it back, mm. yeah. yeah. <laughs> like like they somehow, or, like sometimes order developers to do and they demolish something illegally where they're like, no, you have to rebuild this brick by brick. Yeah, we have, have to, to order the this. National Park Service to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Might work. Give it a shot. Yeah. I will say um, a couple of the slides on this uh, on this presentation I did steal from the previous historic preservation um, presentation. I remember, we did, I remember yeah. this building. I remember yeah. saying that it gave me anxiety, and it still does. Oh, could you? That means could you working. imagine? Could you imagine being in 1960 <laughs> yeah. when everything's falling down in the city of Philadelphia, standing under that thing and looking up? It must have been Going terrifying. back to the. The Hawksmoor thing, you know, give me a 60s Philadelphia adaptation of From Hell, you know? <laughs> write, someone write that. Um, I guess that's kind of Watchmen, but New York, but still. This is the, uh, yeah. this is the last bank I want to talk about, but <clears throat> this, is, this is the Penn National Bank. Um, Pointy. Yeah, really pointy. Uh, I th I think we did talk about this in the historic preservation bonus episode. It's another slide I stole. Yeah, this is this is the site of where Thomas De Jefferson drafted the Declaration of Independence. He did it on the second floor, and so there's this whole kind of beautiful thought, or at least a homage to something of these radiating voussoirs, which are the the, the lines between the uh, the arch of the you know 
stone part of the arch, the lines that radiate yeah. out of that, those are voussoirs. Yeah, each um, individual piece of stone here, that's a voussoir. Yeah. Voussier. Vuvuzela. Um <laughs> <laughs> and, and so so they eventually knocked the 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 building went to rack and ruin. Eventually the government reclaimed the site and put back up a perfect copy of the building that used to be or put up a, a fake invented copy of the building that that they think used to be there but it's a regular ass row house and now it's like barely open uh and it, yeah. it doesn't it it doesn't do anything good and also you know um what's their you know this guy this fucking asshole um yep but but the building's very good I would rather have that building there than what's there now. Um, and that's that. That's from 1883. So you see that there's not a whole lot of change. You know, there's a there's a little bit, but mostly it's like, hey, we need like a cheaper building. We can't build like the thing that's like 45 feet tall and just made out of granite from all over the country. Like, um, but but during this entire period, this is really where where Frank Furness has a very stable, healthy list of clients. Um, the people who he fought in the civil war with now are all rich instead of <coughs> soon to be rich. Yeah. Um, and, and he has, he has this, this very long kind of, um, he has commissions that are both very large and public and then things that are very, um, uh, much less so, you know, uh, r rows of houses, uh, like apartment buildings. Um, the, yeah, firm, the, uh, the firm did everything. The firm was very, very prolific, and we actually don't know how many buildings they built for reasons we'll get to later. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah it's not, not all of them those are like... These raiders came yeah. in and burned all the documents a second yeah. time. I mean... Because I, 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 there's a lot of, of buildings that came out of Frank Furness's firms, because it went through a couple names. Um, a lot of them weren't like you know, with the hand of the master on them, it was just like, well, we got a commission for a building that they want to be kind of normal. Uh, we'll just do that. That's fine. We don't care. Um, I keep trying to bring it into will... his office, and he keeps shooting at me. You yeah, know? The, 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 the junior architects got good at copying Frank Furnace's just enough that it looked like a Frank Furnace. He, he worked yeah. like a sort of a Renaissance painter. Oh yeah, and and not, and, not a and Renaissance so, painter, a Mannerist painter, the kind like Titian or whoever, who's like, yeah, no, I don't want to do that one. You, do, it's another fucking like Virgin or whatever. You do it. Yes. Yeah, you got to start by painting backgrounds, and then once you do the backgrounds, maybe you can do like the the like more complicated backgrounds, and then maybe you can do like parts of the hand that aren't like the complicated part. Mm -hmm. um, and these buildings were, I mean, like, so so there's the reason there's that like kind of influence and the connection that, that that i mentioned at the beginning of the of of this podcast adventure where you have this lineage between those architects they all they were all they were all training the same way as well so the the practice was yeah you start with ornament you have to do all these weird little little flowers and stuff like that so you can actually see like the lilies are the same all the way throughout kind of thing um in the details but if you go to the next slide, like to just to just emphasize that they were um, they the fur the furnace banks were so well known that they were copied. the The two smaller images here are copycats next to the larger images, which are originals. Um, the 
the National Bank of Salem, Oregon, um, by C.S. McNally on the left. Uh, and then that's weak, the National... Weak shit. That's like, oh, fucking, I, I want to build Hogwarts. As opposed to this one here, which looks like... Uh, uh, right, it's of, the uh, same thing. Yeah, this is a, yeah. this is a, I forget what the name of this one is. What What is it? That's the National Bank of Commerce on the right. National Bank of Commerce. Um, this is Kansas a clever City, Missouri. It looks no, like I... a mudslide hitting a minaret, exploding into like a fucking Guitar Hero board. Like, oh, it... yeah, no, that's the National Bank of the Republic, Ross. Sorry, National Bank of the Republic is a clever one because this 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 tower here, or, yeah. or this turret, or whatever you'd call it, is actually used to disguise the fact that the row steps back about five or six feet at this location um, to make it harmonious with both of the buildings next to it by creating this incredible uh, cacophony of architectural detail. Um, you know, uh, this is a really good building. Um, it's, the, it's the best. <laughs> Robert Venturi calls it an insane short story of a um, castle on a city street. And it's just so, it's just so good. You got the half arch. You got this almost pointed arch. You got this whatever's going on up here. You know, you got a tower. Right. You've you got, got like you three got different roofs here. next to each other. Yeah. It's so yeah, good. So sort of like Neuschwanstein, but in a sort of like small bank. Yeah, we sort of put Neuschwanstein into the trash compactor from Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it feels insulting to say it, but so much of this reminds me of the way that AI has of combining details in a way that sort of like almost makes sense, but is profoundly wrong in a sort of greater sense. Totally. That's that's how but, I feel but, about these. It's like the other thing is I think the building is profoundly correct. Um, mm. <laughs> you know, oh, ultimately, yeah, no, this... ultimately, because it became it came out of the mind of the master. Um, <laughs> well, you can see, yeah, you can see all the things where like you can trace vertical or horizontal lines all the way through the facade, but then they're they're broken up in elevation. It's just there's so much. So much care and thought put into this craziness. And and yeah, there's so many different um like there's so many different architectural elements that are either oversized or undersized on these buildings that they really do have the AI art generation thing where it's like eh, it looks good enough. Like there's no there's no really, worry about proportion. I have a really question though. A whole slide about this building actually. Didn't we do it on historic preservation? I didn't want to copy it. Ah, uh, possibly. Yeah, I, I possibly. Was was Furness ever like? Uh, did he ever try to explain any of this? I, I guess that's sort of quite a hostile way of phrasing it. But like, did anyone ever look at this and go, "Why have you done this?" And did he ever answer them that we know of? Oh God, I know. I know Wait. the answer is like. There's a couple times where he gets on the record and he he gives a non-answer. He's like. He d he does the thing that Starkitects end up doing, which is like, yeah, this is um, this is mostly my own conceptualization. I have a few things that I've remembered from X, Y, or Z, but mostly this is just a complete fabrication based on my genius. It's like very much that kind of answer, I think. <laughs> Remember Roz? I don't think it's so much like that as that he just didn't explain it. He's like, it is what it is. <laughs> it was a lot of it was a lot of if you don't like my building you should very respectfully go to hell sir yeah exactly I, well yeah. 
they bought the building. I built the building for them. Contract. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Contract. Also, Contract side mindset. note: I have a gun. You know, I have a gun. Also, I have a gun now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no more questions. <laughs> um, some other, some other important. Yeah, so I, I, I threw this slide in there. Roz is right. We should have talked about National Bank of the Republic because it's so very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I, I threw that slide in because, yeah, to what is it? Topeka, Kansas City, Missouri, and Salem, Oregon have copy have knockoff Frank Furness buildings. Like the whole design of both of these buildings was just wholesale. Just like, yeah, we we went to Philadelphia. We saw a good looking building. We said, yeah, that's the one we want. Wasn't there like and, a whole guy who made a career as a knockoff Frank Furness in like Milwaukee? Oh, uh, there's like he does that same neo Greek stuff. I don't want to say that it's a whole career of knockoff furnaces, <laughs> but um, what is it? Edward Townsend Mix, Edwin Townsend Mix, yeah, um, really great architect. Um, but these are like literal knockoffs. Yeah. <laughs> um, just we, uh, you wanted to talk about First Unitarian Church, right, Roz? I wanted to talk about First Unitarian, but I don't. I don't have much to say about it. The main reason I stuck it in here is, is like, well, this this was an option for one of the venues for our live show. <laughs> oh yeah. So if you go to the next slide. Yeah. Um. So that's the sanctuary area. Uh. You can you can reserve that space. Um. That's a really great space for live shows and events, and you can also do the basement. Uh, I don't. I didn't throw the, a the, of the basement in there. Yeah, the basement is probably the more appropriate for us. Um, really I don't want to be. This, this I don't want to be. This, I don't want to defile a, the sacred space. Yeah, sort of being yeah. watched over by these big sort of like stained glass windows. Yeah, well, while we make sick jokes. Secularists. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, this is so the basement of the first Unitarian Church back in like the, especially back in the mid mid to late 2000s 2010s was was a very fun punk venue um i think they still have shows there but it's not it's not as many as they they used to have shows every night um and it's a very nice building yeah uh this is another another one of those uh commissions he gets you know because because he is in that unitarian world and uh this is one of the few we've talked about so far that's still around um (laughs) oh god right yeah, because you've yeah. got the uh Hoffa. The, that's it. Yeah, the weird rose window. You got these sort of weird entranceways. Um, it's very heavy set. Um, I've never actually been in the sanctuary. I have been in several back rooms at this though. Um if you if you go back a slide, you can see the sort of like steeple that's in a sort of like weird psycho alpine style. Yes. Um, that's that's a that's a port cochere. That's that's just a, a ah, okay. That's yeah. so it's still so good. That's, that's, yeah. that's this is what Albert Hoffman was like seeing when he like took his bike ride after like first synthesizing LSD. <laughs> it's so, so you yeah. You go past a yeah. perfectly ordinary Swiss like Catholic church or whatever, and it just looks like this to you. And 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 like there's there's like a you know there's a there's a poetry right like oh the biggest roof over the church is the one at the entrance, you know, for the entrance way where you come into the congregation or whatever. That's the place where you're going to have the biggest, the biggest welcome and the biggest, you know, pointer, but it's also just fucking, it's nuts. It, it really does look like an acid trip. I think the big, yeah, the big 
uh, thing here, I think, has unfortunately been demolished, but the rest of the building mm-hmm. is still there. And then they yeah. got a more conventional addition on the side, which is unfortunate. Um, you know, it does not does not have the hand of the master. Mm, um, it looks a bit like, <laughs> no. is that the whatever the sort of Unitarian equivalent of a rectory is? Yeah. Vicarage. Um. I think it's a, I think it's a, I don't think so. Um, I think that's actually a couple meeting spaces are in there. Okay. Mm, yeah. What else do we got? We got railroad. Oh, we're doing the trains now. Is what you got? Yeah, trains, we're gonna do the train trains. aspect. So yeah. Frank Furness's firm, it's, it's 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 prolific, but it's not really very prolific until he starts getting contracts with the railroads, right? Uh, he eventually, at, at one point or another, became the architect on call for the Pennsylvania Railroad, the Reading Railroad, and the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Uh, but he was most prolific on the Reading. These are two of uh the most Frank Furness of them. Yeah, he's, he's, what he's done there is he's built them a couple of ski slopes because yes. uh, he's, sort of, he's gotten bored with Islam and he's now moved on to sort of a, a mock Tudor Alpine vibe. The, the, this, <laughs> it, I, I don't know if he like went to like Bavaria or Switzerland in between and just decided, okay, yeah, this is my new thing. But uh, incredible stuff. First of all, they both look designed to like dump huge yeah. amounts of snow onto the lines. But yes. second of all, they look incredible. Yeah. So th- these are these are two stations on the Reading Railroad. These are on the um, what's now the Chestnut Hill West line. Yeah. East is it's it East? West. No, it's, it's in trouble for this. No, I'm pretty sure it's. Hold on, hold on. I got Google Maps open. I'm just looking at this little like turret. Yeah. It is Chestnut Hill East. See, the problem with Chestnut Hill East and Chestnut Hill West is that by the compass, Chestnut Hill oh, West right. and East are due north and south of each other. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the um, these are what's down the Chestnut Hill East line. Um, and these are respectively, let me bring up the notes. Uh, this is Graver's Lane. You can see it has this incredibly weird tower. The, the uh, fucking and, like battleship deck gun. Yes. Yes. And then this is Mount Airy Station. Uh, both of these from 1882. Um, the idea here being you build the train station then above it are the quarters for the station master and his family. Um, you know, nice and convenient. You get paid, you get a free house as well. Um, you know, so the, the, um, the Reading Railroad at this point, they're building now commuter lines uh, around the Philadelphia area specifically. Um, they're just like, hey, this, these guys at uh, Furnace, Evans and Company seem pretty good. Uh, let's just use them for everything. And it's to the point where they give Frank Furness his own private railroad car to tour all the job sites. Um, that's a good perk. That's a really good perk right there. This is what uh, this is what made him enough money that he finally purchased a vacation house in Cape May. Because uh, he had his own house, which was not like something he designed. It was just one he had. Because he was, he was making money. He wasn't making that kind of money, unfortunately. Hmm. He was making architect money. Yeah, architect money. Even then, it Usually was Usually means you have to have a well, <laughs> parent. Yeah. yeah. 
Then uh, at some point he became staff architect on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Um, I don't know too much about any of these buildings. In fact, I just found out about this one today. This was the station in Pittsburgh, which may oh, be his most far. So good. Yeah, that one's really good. This may be his most far afield um, building, except maybe one in Maine. Uh, <laughs> this this one on the top right. Uh, he appears to have tried to build a pagoda. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Oh, the clock I, is just—it's an acid trip clock. Yeah, it—it—it's it, like a clock with clock parts added to the clock. It's a steampunk steam clock. It, it, what it, what it does is it, it represents the B and O's sort of like mandate of heaven. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> America's first and only railroad. <laughs> this was the Twenty Fourth um, Street station. That's in Philly. Uh, it's demolished. It's been replaced by a cube. Um, oh. Yeah, as yeah. has been the one in Pittsburgh. Um, the Cuban Philly uses the Star Trek font as their yeah. as their signage. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big tall apartment tower that says twenty four hundred on top in the Star Trek mm. font. Yeah, NCC twenty four hundred. So, um, you know, and then there's a, a picture of the interior here. Uh, again, this is from back when he was making bank. He was very successful. But he didn't like have any of these like national ambitions or anything. He's like, yeah, I'll just keep doing buildings in Philly. I'm pretty comfortable here, right? Um, but another one that they he built for the B and O is a one that survived somehow, despite the best efforts of CSX. Yeah, yeah, it's not in great shape. But this is the Aberdeen, Maryland station from 1885. Uh, CSX tried to tear it down in 2003. Didn't happen. I think it's now owned by a historical society, but I do not believe it's in very good shape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because restoring these things is, as we got into in the preservation episode, expensive as fuck. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't think this would break the bank. Well, it would, depending on who you are. I, I couldn't do it. Yeah, for a historical <laughs> society, I mean, I you know, yeah, famously yeah. rolling in it. This is true. I don't know. Lots of lots of places, historical societies have restored train stations. I mean, that seems to be like basically what you do. <laughs> uh, when he gets to the Pennsylvania Railroad, he gets some very big commissions indeed. Although I think to a certain extent, I don't know if his talents work so good on bigger buildings. Yeah. Um, yeah. It gets... You know, sort of lost a bit doesn't it? it yeah i mean once you're stuck in this sort of format of the large office building as you see here in broad street station you know where you have these uniform floors and so on and so forth it's kind of like well you're just um you do what you can you put uh, a but, bunch of like minarets and stuff on it but it's up 20 floors yeah. you know yeah it's exactly just, you don't get a you don't get a great uh you don't get a great view of all the details it's not as bombastic it's not as in your face way up there um by the time he's working for the pennsylvania railroad this is broad street station here this is a renovation of the original building this was done in 1892 it was smaller before um frank furnace uh, got to it uh you can see some of the the frank furnace ornamentation here on the train shed um you know but this is sort of a uh how you say this this is probably maybe his biggest building um it's up there I don't, I, it yeah. gets it gets um 
further alterations by the Wilson brothers too. I think the um, I think the other one that you have is the ar- the arcade building is bigger. Uh, by I guess yeah, feet. the arcade building may be bigger in terms of floor area. Yeah, uh, but the firm is really churning out buildings to this point. Critical claim that he had earlier in his career is almost completely gone now. He's mostly like working just because. Okay, you're in Philadelphia. You hire Furnace Evans and Company, right? Mm-hmm. That's just what you do. <laughs> First of all, you owe him a bunch of favors. Second of all, he's a, like established. Third of all, he will shoot you. <laughs> he will shoot yeah. you. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, but it it is very much. It's like I think one of the big challenges with a building like this is there's no single grand entrance or single fo- area of focus, right? It has to have all these yeah. different penetrations. There's no. Right, it's up. Uh, there's it's yeah. sort of an office building first and you know a, a train station second in a way mm-hmm. at least in how the the architecture is done so you know this one is okay not great again he had problems with the big buildings then you have down here in a corner you have the arcade building right which was named so because it was built over a sidewalk almost entirely like this is a very thin building and there are additional buildings behind it um, this was more offices for the Pennsylvania Railroad that weren't in Broad Street Station. Um, I will say I think the one good big Frank Furness building is the West End Title and Trust Company. I don't think it made it, in, or the West End Trust Company. I don't think it made it in this presentation. Mm. You can look it up afterwards. All right. I don't think it Dev did. No, I think we can we can possibly have Dev at it at this yeah. point. Thanks, Dev. Big spinning sort of like thing. Thank you, Devin. Hi, Devin. Yeah. We're sort of in a, we're in our late Frank Furnace era. One fun thing is this. So this building is, again, like everything else, demolished. Um, you know, but one of the sculptures from the interior, a, a, a bas-relief, survives. It's called The Spirit of Transportation. It's by a man named Carl Bitter. It's now in 30th Street Station, which is the new big train station in Philadelphia. But another one I found out when I was researching this is right here, you can't see much of it is uh because it's very low resolution is a bar relief entitled elements of fire and water tamed and harnessed in service to man fuck that's cool yeah by the by by the same artist um so that's really cool that one does not survive unfortunately ah damn yeah and this had i believe the largest train shed ever constructed uh i'm not sure It, it may it exchange place may have been bigger. I don't know, uh, but I think this is the biggest one uh, that burned down um, and they replaced it with normal sheds. Um, what happens when you don't have your elements of fire and water properly tamed and harnessed? You know, I was about to say, yeah. <laughs> hubris, hubris, man's hubris. Uh, mm. And then, yeah, so this is the one where we put it in 30 seconds before recording. But this is this is yeah. actually Frank's house. Um, yeah, this is this his is house. On, this is on Locust Street, I believe. Um, yes. At 7th. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the houses and the, the, the people of Philadelphia who he built houses for probably right now. Um, but the, the, that room in the back is Frank Furness's personal man cave. Yeah, his, his, um, his gamer den. He had a gamer yeah. den. Yeah, he had a man cave. He had a. a it's called it. It was his. It was his smoking room. Oh, right, that's okay. what he called it. Yeah, 
Yeah. He, he he built himself a sort of a, a like a log cabin sort of situation here. Yeah, and he made his yes. own furniture like that shitty table. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, inspired... fuck you, it works for me. Yeah. That's sort of like uh, a, a lot of lot of overlap here with um uh Ted Kaczynski, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> Was said to be inspired from his many trips to the Rocky Mountains, but also um, his time in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. I need to feel like I'm back in the barracks. Uh (laughs) Again, PTSD never hurt anybody. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's no, there's no like, there's no like cushions here. All the furniture is bear pelts. I don't know if you see that. Like, like, there's no, there's no cushions. It's just like, it's just like folding chairs with, with furs on them. Please tell me he lived to see Teddy Roosevelt become president. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, I think he did. He's eleven. Yeah, right. Vindication, Um, you know, which actually the interior of his parents' house. Yeah, now, Uh, now you're getting ahead of us. Now, yeah, Um, all right. That's nah, fine. Uh, when you get down to it, all of the psychology going on here—it's all bear pelts. You know, it's bear pelts all the way down. Bear pelts. There's some. There's some. Uh, what is it? A wampum belt. Yeah. There's some. Some, some like know, stuff about war. You know, uh, of of such things as American masculinity built. Seriously. I was about to say, it used to be cooler. Now it's like all gamer lights. You know. I think this is the Victorian. This is the Victorian version of gamer lights. Oh god! The average the average gamer now barely has one bear pelt. Not a single one. Uh huh. Um, we were also going to share anecdotes that we had forgotten um, to mention earlier in the episode, Roz. I think the the main one that I'm thinking about is um, Furnace was Furnace was uh known to tell people that he would really love if he could get all of his clients together, round them all up at the Academy of Music just so he could tell them all to go to hell. Um, <laughs> which is just the the greatest thing imaginable, especially if you have a... Uh, if, if, shout out to anybody who's ever worked with clients. Um, he, was also, uh, he was also friends uh, with uh, Walt Whitman, I want to say. We got a whole through line of American literature here. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Another another sort of bear pelts guy, you know. This yeah. is true. Yeah. What What do you think they talked about? Because Frank Furness didn't read books. They Be- being gay. Yeah, I think bears. they probably just talked about being Be- gay and shooting bears. Being gay and shooting bears. Well, it wasn't. I, he I, wasn't I keep... hurt. Uh, he He was friends with him through his brother Horace, though. So. Uh, um, okay. uh, you know, maybe maybe he, maybe, looking... maybe they were gay, and Frank was just there. He's just along for the ride. Yeah, yeah. I. It is it is legal for straight men to be like friends with gay dudes. I hear so maybe I don't believe yeah. you. The, the the thing that I keep finding is I keep find I keep looking at the gamer den and I keep finding new things. But the thing that I focus on a lot is we, we made fun of the table. Note also its companion piece. Chair, yes, right stool. at the foot of the table. It's like, yeah, it's like cut off quite badly. You can see the seat of the stool and like fucking oh. its two and a half wooden supports, and it looks like yeah. it's made out of like one piece of indifferently <laughs> chipped off slate or something. 
<laughs> it just looks like it's made by a child and about to fall over. <laughs> I just like the the bare ass lamp hanging from the ceiling, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. I had to no, go it definitely gives the, the vibe of a, It really looks like a derelict space. Yeah, I know. I, he had to, he had to work for this level of uh, dereliction. <laughs> I, I I I have a I have a copy of this photo, but it's in book form. That's higher resolution, and there is a lot you're not seeing here. <laughs> it's just like a bunch of empty cans of Red Bull. Oh my uh, god! Yeah, bunch of bunch of cigar ends. You know. I... <laughs> What, what do you mean you don't love nasty, dirty, disgusting, fucking, fucking filthy girls? Just yeah, giant right. cigars. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh god. Yeah. What, crazy in there. What once once every couple, <laughs> once every like six or seven months, I smoke a cigar recre- recreationally, and I forget how bad it makes me feel the next day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cigar smoking. I mean. Listen, I, I haven't been clear that the federal government needs to invent cigarettes that are good for you. They need to invent cigars that are good for you in a hurry, because, like, unless you really, like, give yourself over to smoking cigars and you become the kind of person who just, like, smokes a cigar constantly, mm-hmm. uh, you no, know, you, you smoke one cigar, you feel like you're gonna die. You feel for awful, a, a yeah. While. Yeah. Yep. yeah. I, don't, I don't know why it became a thing to, like, celebrate something good happening with a cigar, because if you just do like a cigar in isolation, you're not going to celebrate the thing. You might throw up right after, and then for the next like day and a half, you're just going to be lying on a couch. Yeah, just like, about, just like, like your, your breath smells horrible even to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel. I, I don't throw up or anything, but... <laughs> also, I'm going to use the restroom. I'll be right back. It's fine. I can keep looking at this guy's gamer den for a while. Yeah. What, what is? What all does he have hanging up here? Like old shirts? More? <laughs> is that like like a small like a raccoon pelt or something? I, I assume that they're like things that he killed in Fairmount Park in Philadelphia. Like that's that's the vibe of like a fox pelt. What looks like? Yeah. yeah, that looks like a raccoon. He really wanted all of the like wilderness outfits in Red Dead Redemption too, and I respect that because that's the first thing I do is I get bored with the plot and I fuck off and I just go and like hunt animals and bring them to the weird Canadian guy. So the, yeah, the vibe I got from uh, learning about him doing the Civil War was definitely that he he went full cowboy and just embraced that. Uh-huh. I, I sometimes you have to, you know, um, but Rise to the incredible. Game. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that bear pelt covering the sort of chair on the left there still has the ears on it. I, <laughs> <laughs> I really wouldn't be surprised. No, no. So like, uh, hunted badly taxidermied, um, and and now sort of soaking up cigar smoke for the rest of this guy's life. Yeah, I love that the whole thing is like burned. Like, there's so much black soot around the fireplace that's uh-huh. never been cleaned once. <laughs> Oh, I mean, look at the roof timbers, like above the fireplace. There's just like some of those have charred. I swear. <laughs> this is this is sort of like uh, developing an immune system where it's like if any germs get into Frank Furness's body, he, he like all of his like blood cells combine to beat them to death instantly. <laughs> 
Yeah. I, I, yeah, this is this. It, it's described as he built this himself in the back of his house. And in a I think bad that, mood, seemingly. I don't think he had very many good moods. It's also my understanding. <laughs> because, of the, because of the PTSD, probably. The, yeah, yeah the, the, the subheader for the biography is called Architecture and the Violent Mind. Mm. Like... I get the feeling. I get the feeling of uh, Mr. Furnace is that he was um, kind but not nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I think we're. I think we're done with the man cave. Yeah. We're done with the gamer den. What else we got in the yeah. docket? No. Uh, was, we'll you, about... you could have this. You can have this guy design your house. Yeah, yes. house or or social club for rich people. He was very um, good at houses. Um, yeah. By the way, I would uh, like to point out this is a freakishly wide door. Um, <laughs> fuck it is! It's, it's oh yeah, an extremely wide door. Designed All the portions of that door. Very obese man yeah. enter the house. <laughs> yeah. I go the by this door on his, on his on his freakishly heavy bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> This is this is a podcast that has sort of a the occasional recurring character and the extremely fat man on the freakishly heavy bicycle is one that <laughs> <laughs> just comes back to me every so often. How does he get it up the step though? I do, do a little exactly so like BMX style like Ollie, you know. Oh god. <laughs> if he could do that, I don't think he'd be freakishly fat. <laughs> <laughs> It's like very, very developed thighs, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to actually express how big those those top two houses are because they're basically the sizes of like small hotels or apartment buildings. Um, mm. <laughs> yeah, the the building I next love, door. To I love it, wide. I love wide door, very narrow alley too. Wide door, narrow alley. That's like a. It's like a twenty-story building next to it that is on the same footprint of like building a lot with a wide door and a <laughs> narrow alley. Yeah, that whole that I'm whole sure building. Inspecting is the side of this building is great. I've done this with two buildings <laughs> that were like twenty stories high that had this exact level of separation. It was like, the well, ones... if there's a if there's a problem here, there we're not going to catch it. Yeah, the ones that give me nightmares is there was a guy in New York who like fell into one of these between two buildings that like yeah. didn't have a, like an exit. He just died in there. Like oh, that yeah. gives me nightmares. That's the worst thing that architecture can do to you. Maybe I think sometimes they get really small, then you can't get out. Yeah, yeah. I think I, 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 we talked about the caves. Don't go into buildings right. either, folks. No, no, no. When when buildings <laughs> no. when buildings sort of produce caves, don't go into those either. Mm. Yeah, live <laughs> live an untroubled wild life. Live on bear pelts. Um, yes. You know, only live in tents. You know. Um, I don't know if I have anything super coherent to say on this, other than these houses are fucking huge. Uh, the one, the one in the lower right is uh, it's the Marion Cricket Club. Uh, they're all just giant buildings, and when I, I, this is this is kind of what Roz was talking about earlier. Like 
he does he does much better work on on smaller commissions even if they're like this big but you can tell that like there's there's not a lot inventing going on there's a lot of like applying yeah. previously used lessons to kind of make these interesting buildings yeah. uh here's what and, i think is the best house yeah exactly yeah you you okay. i i can't build this like a better house, house. definitely weird and furnessy though <laughs> Well, that's because he built it for his sister and her husband. You know, he, he oh, got I'll that. Like, it, yeah. uh, he got that kid, that kid. <laughs> as a punishment. <laughs> as a punishment. <laughs> no, this no, Alice, it's such a it's such a cool house. No, it was it was for a patent medicine guy, Doctor Horace Jane, um, who married Frank Furness's sister, um, and he, yeah, he did he did a bunch of the like the feel the Doctor Jane's like cure all medicine cures kind of patent medicine um if you're feeling sick you take some eel juice try that maybe you'll feel better um how's the eel juice bill here's an example of you know one of these things in architecture this is the thomas alexander scott residence Mm -hmm. thomas Mm -hmm. alexander scott of course president of the pennsylvania railroad and famously did a corrupt bargain that led to the election of rutherford hayes and the end of reconstruction. Um, Oops. So, you know, again, this is the problem with architecture is your clients fucking suck. Yeah. <laughs> 58 rooms in that house. Oh, my God. The bottom God. of everything is, is the Pennsylvania Railroads. Uh, yeah. We also did that Alexander got... Cassett's uh, townhouse that was on Rittenhouse Square. Um, yeah. So is that one. The Scott Residence. Oh. I'd like um, my house in the shape of a large cube, please. <laughs> With a smaller yeah, really cube attached that. to it. <laughs> and then just the last one's uh, Dollabran on the right. That's on the main line. That's an example. Like the, the two lower ones are out on the main line where the Pennsylvania Railroad executives had their summertime houses and clubs and those sorts of things. So he was totally established. He was the guy who they went to when they needed a new clubhouse for the club. Um, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, there's there's interesting things about it. But I personally think like like, you know, you, you take a look at the uh, Frank Furness's house versus the back or versus a smoking room. The interiors of these houses are what's really interesting. Um, if you go to the next Ooh, slide. Pelts, pelts, pelts. Yeah. Pelts. <laughs> and these are the these are the ones where it's like, oh, this is the pelt that I'm putting on the on the rug for somebody else instead of just myself. Uh-huh. Lots um, of carved dark woods as well. Yes. Um. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the one on the left is the Rudolph Ellis house. Um, the two on the right are the Bloomfield Moore house. Um, Ra- uh, Roz, do you want to read that little thing in the notes? Uh, Basically, yeah, gotta, uh, uh, hold on. It says I can I can, uh, I can read this for you. Depend whoever you want. HTTPS colon <laughs> slash Thank you so slash. much. So, so this is no. this is this, so, this is a tweet from from someone called uh, June. Brackets, no, no, no. It's, it's, things. A, it's a piece of a book. All right, actually, Roz, you have the, right, you have the actual I'll, book. I just don't have it. What on the book? I'll read like, you the quote. Right. So, so can I and should the, I set the, it up? What um, you've said here is, don't ever tell Frank Furness that you went to college. Right. Um, and, and so we quote as follows. So next day, he presented himself to Frank Furness and informed him he had come to enter his employ. Frank Furness was a curious character. 
He affected the English in fashion. He wore loud plaids and a scowl, and from his face depended fan-like and marvellous red beard, beautiful in tone, with each separate hair delicately crinkled from beginning to end. Moreover, his face was snarled and homely as an English bulldog's. Lewis's eyes were riveted in infatuation to this beard as he listened to a string of oaths yards long. For it seems after he had de delivered his initial fiat, Furness looked at him half blankly, half enraged, as if another kind of dog that had slipped in through the door. <laughs> his first question had been as to Lewis's experience, to which Lewis replied modestly enough that he had just come from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Boston. This answer was the detonator that set off the mine, which blew up in fragments all the schools in the land and scattered the professor's headless and limbless quarters of earth and hell. Lewis, he said, was a fool. He said Lewis was an idiot to have wasted his time in a place where one was filled with sawdust like a doll and became a prig, a snob, and an ass. As the smoke blew away, he said, of course, you don't know anything, and are full of damnable conceit. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I can go off, Frank. Yeah, so well, this... guess who got that job? Lewis Sullivan. Yeah. So Lewis... <laughs> and that, like, and that young you, man? Fuck you, fuck you, you're fired. I mean, yeah. okay, fine, you're hired, whatever. You're hired, yeah. And that young man was Lewis Sullivan. Um, <laughs> right, so so the, the, the house on the right, the Bloomfield Moore house... Lewis Sullivan, who's the architect who kind of figures out in a in a coherent way what a skyscraper should theoretically look like. Yeah, because he went to college and no, learned not how because, to no, read. No, uh, no, it's not because he went to college. Uh, it's because it's he hung out with Frank Furness. Yeah, Frank Furness <laughs> knocked all the sawdust out of him. <laughs> I want to see a buddy cop movie about these two. You know, quite badly. <laughs> so, so. Lewis Sullivan is walk walking around Philadelphia, sees this Bloomfield Frank, Moore house. Frank Furness is doing fucking training day shit to him, trying to get him to smoke crap. <laughs> <laughs> Just imagine the hazing ritual at, at Furness Evans and company. <laughs> Which probably involves the shotgun. <laughs> definitely, you definitely have to do a sharpshoot contest. Like, no question about it. I believe there's also an anecdote. He said the interns have to keep the drinks cold. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so Lewis Sullivan is actually one of the few, like one of the few references to Frank Furness that we have, like the man, the myth, the legend. And it's all shit like that mm. where, where he goes, he goes, he sees this one house, the two pictures on the right. And he's like, who designed this? I need to go. I need to go talk to that guy goes to Frank Furness's office and then after saying that he went to college and then says, I'm sorry for going to college, Frank Furness hires him as a draftsman. <laughs> <laughs> he, he works there for about, I think it's about a year total. Um, it may be even a little bit less time than that, but it, you, you, can, you can see the, um, there's just so much stylistic resemblance as we'll show off later in the, in the slides, I think, but but Lewis Sullivan, Sullivan's attention to detail, all these spiky flowers, all these like um, you know very fine tenderly things. Th those are all based on on stuff that he learned from Frank Furness. Um, and yeah, it's just the 
it's these crazy interiors that just go on and on and on and on and on and have more and more and more and more and more stuff. And then you put your stuff on top. Yes. Less is a bore. <laughs> exactly. This is, this is the house for a type of guy who like, I, I, I'm loath to keep referencing Boardwalk Empire just because it's the last show that I watched cover to cover, but this is the type of house that you live in if you call yourself something like the Commodore. <laughs> yeah, no, pretty that's much. New York Central. This is for Pennsylvania Railroad guys. Right. The president, fine. Yes. It's their version of that. You're the but, president but no. to the point where people are confused if you're talking about the real president or the president of the railroad. <laughs> People well, are confused as to whether you're talking about the real president or the president of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you think about like those so like all these photos, right? These are all taken at like the end of the ninth end of the nineteenth century, like the eighteen nineties, early nineteen hundreds. Um they they're they're so dark. There's they're like the rooms are scary. And then you can imagine what happens when somebody doesn't take care of them for 10 years or 15 years or 25 years. The house just is falling apart. And that's what Scooby-Doo is based on. Yes. Hmm. Uh, next slide has... Unfortunately, um, there was no, the yeah. mystery machine had not been invented yet, so the spooky ghost did manage to get most of these buildings demolished. Exactly. Um, <laughs> it's all, it all comes back to real estate and land grabs with that show. Yeah. Which in, in in its way, you know, is radicalizing kids against capitalism and property developers. So you know what? It's true. Fair enough. Um, these are all pieces from Theodore Roosevelt Senior's house in New York City, where young Theodore Roosevelt, uh, who went on to be president, grew up. Um, and was like, man, if I just run hard enough that I don't have asthma anymore, I too could like fill my house with pelts. Yes, pretty much. And so, so... I could go full cowboy mode, and I could become chief of the NYPD. Uh, I could do a, a like a, just a bunch of weird shit that would turn me into sort of like an epic meme guy in a hundred years. <laughs> but back, back, back when he was still just a sickly child. Uh, young young Teddy Roosevelt ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner around that table there. We're, we're all has... of us on our sort of different points on the trajectory from sickly child to epic meme guy. You know, yes. <laughs> among us. Yeah, but um, those are those are herons who are who have uh frogs in their beaks on the table legs. Cool. The the bed like some just violence below that. around the uh, dinner or around mm. the breakfast uh, table. Well, they're yeah. eating, you know, aren't you? Nature, you nature is red in tooth and claw. Um, it's true. So, so, so should you be as you descend upon your eggs. So, very fitting for the dining room, right? Um, mm. And then I think there's ow owls are on the bed. Um, but it's all these little references. Yeah, the to owl nature is the horniest bird. Sleepiest bird. <laughs> <laughs> I I prefer my interpretation. No, I prefer your interpretation too. Um, and that's the library. Although cu cu curiously, no owls in the library, despite owls, you know, having a fucking like book thing since fucking Athena. You know, aren't owls actually very stupid? Uh, yes, but you know that they've got good branding. <laughs> okay, uh, you know that's 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 how 
mean, that that's how we are too. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good good PR gets you everywhere, you know. Uh, that's bit so basically in 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 summary, closing out this chapter, a bunch of rich people houses that we don't have anymore all got built and then were mostly demolished. Uh, Frank Furness's greatest design, uh, the, the interior of Theodore Roosevelt Jr.'s mind. Yes. <laughs> Straight, straight line from him to the Perdicaris affair, you know? Yep. Uh, anything else? Uh, or I think, I think we only got a couple. Uh, we're going to move on to the, uh, left. maybe the Magnum Ooh, I like this one. Yeah. Very German to me. This one looks like the Rothus, like, Rathaus. So, 18, this is 1890. Uh, by, by then... Frank Furness's sphere of influence had extended to all of the people who are the trustees of the University of Pennsylvania, as well as all of the other railroad executives and, and other wealthy magnets, right? Um, again, no uh, one outside of Philadelphia, though. Uh, this <laughs> yeah, man has yeah. never interacted with anyone from outside of Philadelphia. <laughs> the city <laughs> limits are where the influence ends, with some it's very incredible. small exceptions. <laughs> so when Penn moves out, so Penn moved out to West Philadelphia. They needed to construct a new library. The emphasis on this whole project was to have something that the students could u- utilize, but also that it could be added onto in in the future. This is like a, it's it's again one of these like bizarrely technological buildings when it comes down to it. Mm. Um, I mean, meanwhile, Pittsburgh is like building their fucking like nerd cathedral at this point. So, may right, not be the so, case. I'm, but I think the timing works out on that one. That sounds about right to me. Yeah, eighteen ninety. Yeah, that's probably about right. Yeah, uh, they were how? Uh, um, this building's cool too, though. Uh, you should look at this one instead of that one. Um, yes. Yeah. It's a better so by, building. by by this time period, Furness is working almost entirely on these monochromatic compositions, right? So rather than all of the crazy colors used in in the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, this building's all red. It's all terracotta and brick and uh, stone that's also in the terracotta brick color scheme. Uh, hmm. If you go to the next slide. You'll you kind of get a sense for the the there, there's like a very clever uh, the plan is executed very cleverly and basically just copies a cathedral to to make it work right so you have these two separate areas you have um, what would be the oh god what is it it's been so fucking long where the, the where the apps. where the yeah no yeah with the apps yeah. where the priest yeah. lectures right yeah. Priest delivers a sermon. You do left all these giant steel beams uh, exposed. You know, again, very, very modernist, very uh, forward thinking Mm. here. Not something anyone would do for a while after. And that's the reading room, right? So it's this huge vaulted space that, in a plan, looks like a Christian church, or you know, uh, but 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 in in execution, really has like this whole different look to it. There's those little well, I would say uh, uh, spiritually, this is a basilica. 
you know, like mm. a Roman basilica because there's no uh, transept. It's been, it's been and they've so put in, they've they've put in a very sort of like college TM sort of uh, encomium to to like language in the abstract here uh, over this this transom here. Um, oh, blessed letters that combine in one all ages past and make one live with all. By you we do confer with those who are gone and the dead living unto council call. Which, one of those sentences that you know that the person who composed it has, like, read too much Latin. Yes. And that man <laughs> was William Henry Furness. Or Horace Howard oh. Furness, the Shakespeare scholar. He gave, oh, he gave okay. his brother all the quotes. Um, Damn. The yeah. Nepo baby. Yeah, <laughs> true classic. You call your brothers the Shakespeare scholar. You get, they don't even have phones back then. Um, no, it's 1890. They do. They're just not very good. Yeah, yeah but the, you, the, the, you you get your 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 brother to like gussy up your stuff by like putting some fucking bard on it. Yeah, you still got the quote uh, from anywhere. Still got the. He's still doing the Islamic arches. He's still doing uh. You know, this interesting contrast with materials. He's just, you know, got the voussoirs going that are contrasting with the brick. This is all interior. This is all, of course, still there. Uh, they tried to tear it down. They didn't manage it. Um, <laughs> yeah. One of the most Fucking interesting quote. One of the most interesting parts of this building, though, is if we go back a slide. Well, if you pay attention to this area here, which is the stacks, yeah. you can see these two things protruding here, those are rails that were built into the building. Mm -hmm. The idea being that if you needed more room for books, you could slide the exterior wall out and insert a new section. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fuck, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, and, oh God, we don't have a picture of it, but if you look on that side of it, it looks like an Italian basilica. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's so it's so it's another reference to to like church in, um, and that's the that oh oh all of this so the stacks which are only you know it was designed as an employees only area, all of the floors have frosted glass, uh, on them so that light would go all the way through the building. Huh. It's a it's it, it's cool building which I've somehow still never been inside. Um. <laughs> Yeah, if you're a Penn student and can take Justin to the Fisher Fine Arts Library, uh, I would like to go to the Fisher Fine um, Arts Library. Do universities, maybe your universities are different, but like, do, do, do they check who goes in them? Like, I, you need a student ID to get in this building. Um, oh, because you know, it's a library, of course. It's a yeah, library, okay. and yeah. it's in an urban area, and they don't want a criminal or a homeless person to get in there. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna w walk out with all the books because I can't get I I don't know I used to be able to get in when I had a Drexel ID but I I can't anymore because I don't know where that is. <laughs> yeah, I spent yeah, all, all the, that like, time Hogwarts. Mm. I spent all that time at Drexel University. Like maybe I should probably go into this library. I want to just see what it's like. Didn't do it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I went into all the, the like. 
like Hogwarts bits of of um of Glasgow, and you know they they don't check. You know the library is the brutalist <laughs> bit, so you got to have ID to get into that because they don't want you stealing the books. But like they don't they don't care if you go in the Hogwarts bit. That's fine. No one's gonna notice. Yeah. I don't know. University of Pennsylvania students, uh, let me in your library. Also, your mm. school sucks. <laughs> yeah. This is sort of the magnum opus of Frank Furness's career. It's one of the, I think, one of the best buildings in the world. Um, but, you know, there's this issue where tastes are sort of changing rapidly nationally, which is where mm. we have to get to sort of the Gerard Bank situation. Yeah, <clears throat> I think we'll 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 cover this one pretty quickly. But I think this is really no. I think this is a funny story. We should we should dwell on it. <laughs> All right, we're gonna spend a lot of time on this one. Everybody, everybody, buckle okay. in. Ne- next hour of this. Yeah. All right. So so the the Gerard Trust Company, right, is the successor to what was Stephen Gerard's bank, and Stephen Gerard. Stephen Gerard's bank goes all the way back to the founding to the founding of America when he loaned America all the money to get America going. Um, so they need a new location. They he had, wound they up buy buying a... the first bank of the United States. Yeah, Stephen Gerard bought out the first bank of the United States. Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, and so the Gerard, Gerard Trust Company has this parcel at Broad and, Broad and Chestnut Street right next to City Hall, right next to another Frank Furness building. <clears throat> and of course, they, the trustees of Gerard, Gerard Bank go, well, who are we going to hire for this building? And they all look around the room and they're like, well, oh shit, we have to hire Frank Furness, or at least yes. the Furness firm. Yes. So they, so they write, the, write Furness Evans and company a letter saying that they'd like a building, but they would like it specifically not in the Frank Furness style. Cut that Frank Furness <laughs> shit out. And they, yeah, they go, they go, cut that shit out. Nobody wants to see that. This is, I, I, I think the angriest a human being maybe has ever been. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it goes the way you think. Okay. So, Based on what I've learned about the character of Frank Furness and his personality, that letter landing in his entry. Um, you well, want a so, classical building? I'll give you a fucking classical building. Right. So it's the early it's the early 1900s at this point. Frank Furness is old. That doesn't mean that he's not angry and ordinary, etc. But he's he's old. He knows he knows when to fight a battle and when not to fight a battle. So all all that happens is uh, through Alan Evans, his business partner, he sends watercolor sketches back to the representatives is that is that what it is yeah um yes i i believe he he has evan sign them even though he's doing them <laughs> right so so he just wants uh all right so here i have the i have the quote here um a letter sent privately to evans on june 16th so not to the furnace firm just to evans made the formal offer my interest is in you and not your firm for while I have the highest respect and esteem for Mr. Furness, we do not wish a building designed upon his well-known lines. I say this without no, the slightest that weird shit. Yeah, we don't want that weird <laughs> shit. I say this without the slightest reference to Mr. Furness's great ability and skill as a designer. And then, 
there's also an extent to here where the architectural press based in New York had started really shitting on Frank Furness and some of his imitators. Um, you know, the, the, the guys who founded like architectural digest were like putting out a, a column quarterly, which was like architectural atrocities or something like that. And they were like, look at all this crazy fucking shit in Philadelphia. Can you believe this? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, right. So instead of, instead of Frank Furness doing the thing that he might've said back in the day, which was like, all you fuckers can go to hell, never contact my office again. Evans tells him about it. And then Frank Furness goes to the Gerard Trust Company and says like, hey, I'm really sorry. I'll do whatever anybody asks me. I just, I just do whatever I want. You know, I just do whatever my clients ask me to do. So if you don't want a furnace building, we'll make something really nice. Um, God, that's sad. Yeah, so, I so mean, that, uh, the firm's business had unfortunately been kind of drying up at this point. Yeah. Um, so he called himself a variety artist, which is like really a bummer. Um, and so, like, uh, okay, what happens next? Right. So, even though, even though they're like, no, we don't, we're not interested, we're good. Um, we just want Alan Evans on the project. They they basically just do it anyway, like a normal building, and they go off of one of those watercolor sketches that Frank Furness had originally made. Um, and then Furness refined the design. Um, then Wait, so he just like does he just does it and like just pretends not to. Yeah, so he built. That's he designs the building. What happens? Yeah, he designs the building and pretends not to. <laughs> and so, and so, then I guess they're still in like a collaborative process with the board, with with Evans kind of serving as the go between. They must realize that something's up, and they're like, uh, "We're going to hand this over to McKim, Mead, and White." Yeah, um, they gave it over to the pedophiles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or the one pedophile and the two others that had other hangups. Um. So, so Evans, like Evans, is the actual go-between to hand off the files, and then that's basically "quote unquote" it. So, if you look now, a lot of times the building is described as a as a McKim Mead and White building, but this is a hundred percent a Frank Furness design that very creatively mixes all of these disparate elements layers a uh, you know layers a a classical revival skin over a typical frank furnace thing and and really makes this this design work this building's there today it's got only a couple alterations um it's a really impressive space you can also see where mckim mead and white took over the building because on one of the sides of the building it's very subtle but there is a point where there is additional ornamentation in the entablature, which abruptly stops. Um. <laughs> yeah, highly recommend if you go on Google Street View and see where this building on Chestnut Street uh, meets with the building next to it. You'll see just a little bit of extra ornament. Just a little bit of extra ornament. And then and McKim Mead and White took over and like, I cut that out. They get the spray <laughs> bottle out, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, no more weird shit. No, no, no more weird shit. shit. No, not not on our watch. 
this is also like so, part of where you know the tastes were changing i think for the worse um hmm. and uh this is why a lot of the we were embracing modernism and rejecting we we're embracing yeah. modernity and rejecting tradition we're embracing the city beautiful movement really i think at this point you know you're talking about well we're gonna do straight up classicism that. again you know we're gonna we're gonna do uh, yeah, all this sort of boring temple bullshit you know <laughs> right we're done. We're done with anything that gets really, yeah, scary looking. It's only going to be classical temples from here out. Yes. Um. Yeah. And this is sort of, you know, where I guess we're skipping ahead a bit with the next slide, but this is how a lot of Frank Furness's stuff gets demolished because it was neglected for a while, and then this wonderful thing called the National Park Service. Decides I've to make these guys. They decide to make Philadelphia more historic than it was <laughs> by removing some history from it. Like, sort of like like a dentist yeah. pulling teeth. Yeah, removing quite a lot of the history. In fact, um, so here's Independence Hall, which is in Center City, Philadelphia, and you can see up here a picture which I stole from again our historic preservation episode, and you can see that. Where there's this big, nice, grassy mall that no one uses, um, especially people who live here. Uh, there used to be buildings with, like, stuff in them, right? Hmm. Uh, among them were several Frank Furness buildings and also countless other nice, you know, architectural gems, right? Which were, you know, uh, unceremoniously demolished because we need, you know... We need to glamorize where did they sign the Constitution in there? I think they or did they just sign the Declaration of they, Independence? They, they did some there? like wig bullshit. They, they, they did some like, wig bullshit yeah. in there, and then it's like we got to demolish all these buildings for it. I, it's 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 crap. It's stupid. It's a bad idea. They shouldn't have done it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it it really is the worst thing ever. Um, it really frustrates me uh, to think about what could have been there. Um, among this is you know not just uh in front of independence hall but down chestnut street this way where there's fewer pictures i could put up here mm -hmm. that's where a lot of these like small bank buildings we talked about were um and other frank furnace you know buildings just because again they were so out of fashion because those those new yorkers didn't like them um they were just neglected for a long time well there, there's the intellectual a couple... colonization of Philadelphia by the yeah. cowards in New York City. Yes. <laughs> and there's a couple other things that happened right around this time, like, you know, in the in the preceding maybe, let's say, you know, 30 years, right? In, in between the 30s and the 50s, the, the central business district really shifted so that what used to be this kind of healthy and thriving, quote unquote, banker's row type of thing then suddenly disappears. and all of the banking is is on the twelve hundred block of Chestnut Street now, or something like that. Like all the banks consolidated. You didn't have a merchant's bank and a farmer's bank and a corn yeah. products bank, and then like a, I don't know, a chemical bank. A chemical bank stayed around longer than the rest of them. Um, and corn. <laughs> well, because we kept using all the chemicals. Yeah, this is true. Use corn to make chemicals. It's true. Yeah, exchange corn. Then you use the chemicals to make the corn. So mm. you know it's a it's a good relationship. Perhaps. Symbiotic relationship there. 
<laughs> it's all been folded into PNC or something by now, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think the other the other thing that's worth mentioning is that yeah, the the history that got remembered here is is independence mall and the the kind of very brief moment where America was fighting for the revolution. And we lost this entire body of history about Philadelphia's manufacturing past. All of these, all of these incredible buildings that, that, that once were there just disappeared overnight. Curiously, we lost a lot of abolitionist history as well. Interesting. Right, weird how that happens. Um, yeah, I know, because I believe if you look Which at Which side shot, won the Civil War again? In the uh, long run? So... In the short term, the Union. In the long term, ugh. <laughs> yeah, it gets messy, doesn't it? I want to say, I want to say that like uh, Pennsylvania Hall was like right here. Um, don't quote me on that. It maybe it's somewhere in that vicinity. Um, but yeah, that's part of. Uh, I want to say the Federal Reserve Building now. That's <laughs> <laughs> one of those one of those uh, buildings they decided not to reconstruct for some reason. I don't know why, because <laughs> they reconstructed a lot of like colonial era buildings you know, just as part of this project. But apparently Pennsylvania Hall wasn't going to be one of them. <laughs> um, more destruction, more destruction porn on the next page. That's about it. Yeah. Yeah. This was, Look this how was they just... massacred my boy. <clears throat> there really isn't anything to, I mean, you can talk about the devastation of this area and like a lot of this founded the national preservation movement in a lot of ways, or at least, uh, help to kickstart it, but I don't understand, June. This is historic preservation. So we can this see our cars being preserved in the parking lot. Yeah, all this, yeah, this, the, and then, and then, yeah, <laughs> right. We did it. We we fixed the problem. Everyone, we, we saved did. the city. Yeah, we we <laughs> the, you know this this kind of smart, walkable, mixed use density should be illegal to build in many cities in the United States. And the government said that full-throatedly, and now here we are. But it's um, fine, because it was like slum clearance, you know? Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't even. I don't think it was even that slummy. I, I'm going to be honest. I'm pretty sure back then this was like a, a neighborhood that was fine, except that oh, we it got significantly do, worse. We had to do some kind of, like, national project to honor our history by destroying all these buildings so i I remember some of this was like bicentennial wasn't it like 70s even i think it was extended in the 70s but the mall was started in like the 50s i think yeah eisenhower yeah yeah independence mall was a slight it was an earlier god what was it yeah, it, it was a separate. It was a separate project before it got really folded in. Yeah. So anyway, Independence Mall is a revanchist bullshit, which uh, destroyed our boy Frank Furness. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, was several other destroyed factors. Frank Furness was a, a death. Yeah, he experienced that. I'm afraid to say. Yeah. yeah so I, uh, we got to... I guess talk about the end of Frank Furness, right? Um, so the firm didn't get as much work in his later years. I believe he wound up having to sell his house in Media, Pennsylvania, uh, move back in to Center City. Um, I think he was supported by family for a while. Um, and he eventually, I believe he died in 1912. 
um, he was not penniless or like destitute like Lewis Sullivan would be, um, but not as wealthy as he once was. And he was very much in obscurity. Uh, the architectural press didn't really talk about him, but his firm outlasted him. That folded in the 1930s. Uh, all its archives are just thrown into a dumpster, which is why <sighs> we're still we're still finding new buildings built by uh, Furnace Evans and Company. Um, <laughs> so it's right, Mosby, Mosby's Raiders' revenge, you know? Yeah, Mosby's Raiders came back in the form of a dumpster. <laughs> um, one of the I mean, things... I think it's that, a fair comparison between a dumpster and Confederate cavalry. But... That's a good point, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things is, especially later in his life, he, he had a lot of bad-mouthing by the architectural press, as I've mentioned. Uh, the Furnace never seemed to really care about the architectural press, though. Because as long as the firm was making money, he, he was fine keeping this operation very parochial. As I said, they didn't really operate outside the immediate Philadelphia area. Yeah, you have some like work on the table. You've got uh, you know a glass of whiskey that's cold. You have a revolver that's loaded. What more yeah, do you want? Exactly. That that that's an ideal way to go through life. You have a smoking room. You know, uh-huh, uh-huh. it seems like a great great place to be. Drunk, armed. Uh, working that that's not bad. You can do a lot making worse money. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. So, according to, but uh, there 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 were some like contemporary like assessments of his work, which I think uh, led to some of the aspects where uh, all this stuff got demolished earlier than it should have been. For instance, the Architectural Record, Volume One, Issue Three, mentioned. Uh, they really tried hard to avoid mentioning Frank Furness's name. They talked about the architecture of Chestnut Street. Yeah. Which was a, a pathological collection, an assortment of anomalies. Anomalies. These are pretentious edifices which would be revolting to the inhabitants of Omaha and that their authors would be ashamed to erect in Kansas City. Oh, fuck you. This that flyover was, state bullshit. Yeah. Literally, that, that was, one knockoff building was from 1890. This is two years later. Yeah. This was uh, this is in March 1892. This is from the complete works of Frank Furness. That's page 134. Uh, there, there's this mood that, like, okay, this this Frank Furness era, this is an ugly past that needs to be forgotten. We need to move forward into doing neoclassicism from the late 1790s. Um, you know, which is the city beautiful movement. Uh, these are blights. These are ugly, tasteless old buildings. Um, there's sort of efforts to erase him from, you know, the architectural record as anyone with any influence or any kind of like uh, clout. Um, you know, even when Louis Sullivan himself said Frank Furness was a major inspiration for his work, uh, Louis Sullivan's. Okay, right, this is a complex one. There was a, a contemporary book about H. H. Richardson, where Louis Sullivan was a source, and he was like, "Oh yeah, you know, Frank Furness was you know a big influence on myself, and you know, he was a big influence on these other things." Try to completely expunge him from the record, right? <laughs> he taught me to be ashamed of going to college. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, the other thing is like imitation is sincerest form of flattery. There's architects around the region contemporarily that unknowingly or knowingly copied his designs. You know, uh, Willis G. Hale is one. Uh, he was a little, little off. 
it's one thing I will say, it seems like a hard style of architecture to copy. Yes. Like, it's so itself that, like, you, you gotta work hard to try and render you, it, I feel you, like. You have to be traumatized in a way that mm-hmm. only the Civil War could do to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm amazed that, like, the, the First World War didn't have more of an aftermath of that. The US should have joined it earlier. It could have had more of a sort of a fun-esque, you know? I was about to say, you'd have a, we have more interesting architecture. Um, <laughs> I, I suppose this is validating the theory that the First World War caused modernism. Um, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, if we say that the Civil War caused Furnessism, <laughs> he was he was like a, a, a modernist before his time, right? Like, yes, you put him in a different time in a different place, but like as traumatized. Uh, you put yeah. him in like a sort of nineteen twenties Europe. Uh, he would have done very well for himself, you know. Yeah, I also right. like to think he would have been a communist and agreed with me about all the specific ways in which communism should work. Oh, obviously, yeah. Obviously, uh, no I question. Am. Whatever identity <laughs> you want to assign on Frank Furness, I think is totally that, applicable. That's, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's long dead and so are most of his relatives, so we can assign anything we want to. <laughs> yeah, and if, and if the relatives say otherwise, we'll just say that, we're, that they're yeah. lying. Mm-hmm. But he's not like rediscovered. Yeah, he threw all of his yeah. old blog posts about what kind of Marxist Leninist he was in the dumpster. In the dumpster, to, yeah. Like, Th- thank God, thank God, Mosby got there. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> we'd have to think about this. When did, when did Mosby <laughs> die? Is my question. Well, entirely possible. John Singleton Mosley died in 1916. So you know what? He outlived him by four oh years. God. Entirely plausible. Yeah, yeah, that seems about right. Yeah, we still have Mosby's memoirs. We don't have Frank Furness's documents. Mm. What does that say? Interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah I know, right? <laughs> so, he's not really rehabilitated until the 1970s, which is well after most of his best buildings are demolished. I believe it's, uh, yeah. you know, this is sort of like a postmodernist movement where they look back and like, who the fuck is this guy? Why did we get rid of his buildings? <laughs> Well, and like, um, I don't know, I think there's, there's like, some of Lutchen's buildings in the UK, like, really come similar to the weight and the kind of, like, weird historical details that Furnace used. And, yeah, it's like, it's like, if you, if you took every Lutchen's building and you kicked, and you kicked it out of the cannon, like, that's what we did with Frank Furnace. That's yeah. not helpful for anybody, is it? It's com- yeah. completely completely like ignored for like you know 60 years and only just getting back into like you know the architectural canon i mean if you live here yeah. in philadelphia and you have any kind of architectural education you're going to learn about frank furnace i i do not believe that's the case for the rest of the country even though you know this is uh you know a a a, a brilliant mind whom we can only aspire to be Mm-hmm. Yeah, Papa assisted by ends gun. Up being in textbooks, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. We can, we can only we can only aspire to be as cantankerous, as drunk, as armed, or as brilliant. Well, this is the thing, right? I think a thing about architecture is to create great architecture. You know, you have to deal with clients, right? Mm-hmm. Um, dealing with clients is like the biggest part of the problem. And if you want your architectural vision to go forward, you have to convince the client that your idea is right. And what you do now 
is you have to be good at manipulation. You know, mm. uh, you have to be Wear like a little uh, turtleneck, talk yeah, about your vision. Yeah, this exactly. Nature. This is why so many historical great architects have been complete bastards, right? Mm. Um, Frank Furness didn't have to do that because he had a gun. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what, what's the Capone quote? You can get a lot further with a kind word and a gun than with just a kind word. Yes. <laughs> And he didn't do the kind word part, which, if anything, we respect him more for. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you come so to my man. office and you want to pay me, I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> you want you want you want you want a building for me? You want you want to hire my office? You better dance. <laughs> <laughs> This is also our attitude to making podcasts. Yes. <laughs> you want a bonus episode? You get it on the 31st of the month. There's fucking bullets ricocheting off the walls. <laughs> so, well, there is like also a direct line between Frank Furness and some other very famous uh, architects who were never really expelled from the canon. Mm-hmm. Most notably, Louis Sullivan. Right, uh, alarmingly bald architect. Yes, I, I, he he is, uh, you know, invented sort of the aesthetic form of the modern architect. He invented his own unique language of ornament. You know, the Sullivan esques, right? Um, you know, another sort of pretty personal style of architecture. Uh, yeah, you know, he he did the Goth Target. Um, <laughs> he's, he's like not afraid to get weird with it, which I think yeah. you can see the sort of like heritage there. Yeah, I mean, he got really weird with it, especially with the um, the jewel box banks is banks all through the uh, Midwest. Yeah, but uh, Louis Sullivan was he he worked in Frank Furness's office. He was only mm-hmm. kicked out uh, because not because he was bad at anything. I mean, he he stayed for that one week trial. And then Frank gave him another week, and then he was like, "You can stay as long as you want." The only reason he left was because uh, I want to say the Panic of eighteen seventy three. Uh, yeah, it was one all of those, the work one dried of those up. Yeah, all done. I got the book in front of me. Uh, yeah, I put a bookmark in here because I knew I was going to reference it. I'm enjoying. I've just found here a picture of one of his um, one of these jewel box banks. Uh, which has an enormous mosaic with like uh, sort of lions uh, and and shields above the door, which just says in sort of like perfect um, perfect lettering thrift, which I really like. This is so like good. long tail of Presbyterianism. We come back to John Fraser after all. When you get down to it, it's all sort of Scottish psychos. Um, I'll give you the last couple paragraphs here. The offices of Furness and Hewitt occupied the entire top floor of a new brick four-story building at the northeast corridor of 3rd Street and Chestnut. One day in September, it was very warm. All windows were open for air. The force was wearily at work. As they worked, there came through the open windows a murmur, barely noticed at first. Then this murmur became a roar with wild shouting. Then to all the windows... Louis saw far below, not pavement and sidewalks, but a solid black mass of frantic men, crowded, jammed from wall to wall. The offices of J. Cook and Company 
were but a short distance south on Third Street. Word came up that Jay Cook and Company had just closed its doors. Louis saw, saw it all as he could see down both Chestnut and Third. Chestnut westward from Third was also a solid mass. The run on the banks had begun. The devastating Ooh. panic of 1873 was on in its I would mad hate career. To look out of the windows and see that like history is occurring, you know? Yes. <laughs> you know what? You, his, history is something that you want to find in a book, not out of your window. Yes. Louis was shocked and appalled at the sight. He was too young, too inexperienced to under, understand what it really meant. Even when he was told it was a panic in finance, that credit had crumbled to dust, that men were ruined and insane with despair, that this panic would spread like wildfire over the land, leaving ruin in its wake everywhere. And he still could not understand what had brought it about. The work held steady for a while. There was work on hand which had progressed so far that it must be completed. One day in November, Frank Furness said, Sullivan, I'm sorry, the jig is up. There'll be no more building. The office is now running dry. Building's over. (laughs) You've done well, mighty well. I like you. I wish you might stay. But as you were last to come, it is only just that you should be the first to go. With that, he slipped a bill into Louis's hand and wished him farewell and better days. That was the year of Louis Sullivan working in Frank Furness's office. Say, hey, that's not bad, all things considered. I was no. about to say. I mean, that's a that's a major progression from the guy uh, just insulting you and then giving you a job. <laughs> no, that whole yeah. book's really. Good. He, he won him over, you know. Yeah. So, anyway, Louis Sullivan is this very influential architect, and one guy he has in his office. He becomes a very influential architect. And one guy he teaches in his office is Frank Lloyd Wright. I was going to add another picture here. Uh, pretend there's a picture of one of the houses here, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, so and, and Frank Lloyd Wright was like very influenced by Sullivan. So this is sort of the the Frank and Louie pattern holds is all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And as as we learned uh weeb yes yeah. yep <laughs> uh and he was fi- uh oh he was also lewis sullivan fired him so there's that there's that connection too that's another connection yeah but he got fired for building houses on the side not for uh financial <laughs> conditions <laughs> yeah our next guy uh louis khan actually was uh tutored under Paul Philippe Krepp, so there's a complete disconnect there. Um <laughs> Meanwhile, yeah. the, the the world waits for another another Louis. The world wa- you know? is in the waiting for another Louis, yes. I, 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 breath. Yes, we need another great American architect. We can't keep going Ross, with just should, Frank Gary. We should write one of those treatises that, that has like a long historical precedent for why there must be another Louis to lead us out of architectural chaos and into stability or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good start. We could probably do that. So yeah, that is uh, the greatest architect to ever live, Frank Furness. Mm-hmm. Does anyone have any folks. questions? 
Uh, how soon can we do about 50 more of these fuckers with, like, you and June while we just talk about Architects? Because I really enjoyed this one. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, oh, we're always here to talk about Architects. I have to think about who the next guy would be. Maybe Aero Saarinen. We might as, we might as well she hear all my yeah. Saarinen until, until the yeah. arch, yeah. <laughs> we talk about, uh, who else? We could just get, could just do Frank Lloyd Wright. To be frank, there's enough do, there. I, I we could do Frank Lloyd Wright. I don't like Frank Lloyd Wright that much. Is the even thing. better. I, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. When you talk positively about architects, it means that you're talking positively about architects. Yeah, that is the thing. Yeah, yeah I like some guy Frank died in his house. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, I find like the worst architects there. That the the, the work guts and Borglum. Well, this is the the thing I, I think about Frank Furness, which is unique among famous architects, is he doesn't seem like he was a bad person, <laughs> mm. right? Which no, is which is like skewering a bunch of guys on the end of a lance when you're like in your twenties will do that to you. I think. Yeah, I mean, because he's like, you know, he fought a holy war against slavery. Um, and then, you know, what did he do after that? He was like, I hate my clients. They fucking suck. <laughs> and it's like, this is the attitude you really should have. That shows that you still have some humanity. Um, <laughs> they tried to suck him out, suck it out of him in his later days, but I think he kept it. Um, <laughs> yeah, z- zero, zero tolerance for slave, for slavers. Um, an iota more tolerance for architecture clients. Yes. But not much. <laughs> not much. <you> know? <laughs> May we all may we all tell our enemies we one could, day to go to hell. To go to hell, yeah. <laughs> In a large auditorium. <laughs> <laughs> Next live show. Um oh, hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They'll love it though. So yeah. you know. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah, it doesn't work. Mm. Unless. Well. <laughs> Wheels. Frank Furnace. Yeah, we're gonna advertise it as a Red Scare live show and see who <laughs> shows up. You know, <laughs> yeah, we lure all of our enemies in. Yes, <laughs> to a basement. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> New Elijah Problem live show under this precariously suspended cardboard box. <laughs> all right. Well, I think. That was a podcast. That was a podcast. Yeah. We got to, yeah, we'll do another bonus episode at some point soon. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Well, that's, I think the, it's Liam's turn next. All right, beautiful. I'll get on to do fashion. Uh, All right. Well, bye, everyone. Good night, everyone. everybody. Incredible. That's really good. I had a great time. Yeah, that, that Thanks. That's pretty good. Huh? I'm so glad.